People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available pro-access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available pro power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. The Nexium Sex Cult. Founded by Keith, creepy-ass, super-punchable-faced Ranieri in 1998. At its height, this Nexium had nothing to do with acid reflux medication and counted thousands of members, including celebrities, heirs, and heiresses who all paid thousands, sometimes millions of dollars to attend a never-ending stream of bullshit classes at various Nexium training centers. Lying at the intersection of a multi-level marketing scheme, a self-help group, and occasionally a, an adult summer camp, Nexium was a true cult. For a few diehards, it kind of still is. People started publicly worrying about how dangerous this cult might be all the way back in 2003, but it wouldn't be until 2017 when the New York Times published an article about one of its former members being literally branded like cattle as a part of an, an initiation into a secret sex cult within Nexium that the group's true and terrible practices will be brought into the light and finally exposed. We'll meet some people, seemingly ordinary people, that so desperately wanted someone to lead them to enlightenment. They allowed themselves to be slowly manipulated into pain to participate in weirder and weirder exercises until they finally agreed to be actual slaves. And part of basically a harem. We'll meet Keith Ranieri, the devious and perverted mastermind at the center of all of this who used his experience at Amway of all places, a Michigan-based multi-level marketing company, and then borrowed a lot from Scientology to make people think he was some kind of once-in-a-lifetime guru spiritual Jedi who had the answer to all of your and all of the world's problems. But he wasn't, isn't a guru. He didn't have any answers. Not really. Keith Raniere is just a man, a really selfish, sick, and bad man who convinced people that doing what he wanted, even if what he wanted was to sexually exploit and degrade them, was the only way for them to lead an ethical, enlightened life. Now he's in prison about to be sentenced possibly for the rest of his life. How did Keith manage to keep Nexium going for almost 20 years? Who the hell is this guy? How did Nexium and other multi-level marketing schemes keep manipulating people and taking their money? 
What psychological processes lead to people getting into and then to staying in a dangerous cult? All of this and more on another cult, cult, cult edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, you beautiful, beautiful bastards. Hail Nimrod, hail Lucifina, praise Bojangles, and sing to me, Triple M. I had one hell of a week. I'm Dan Cummins, the master sucker, COVID slayer, and you are listening to Time Suck. This past week for me and the crew here at Bad Magic Productions was all about COVID-19. I tested positive, was sick for a week, and still kind of dealing with some weird symptoms. Uh, The queen of the suck, Lindsay, tested positive. She's sick right now. Uh, In bed at this moment, Logan and Kate Keith tested positive, also sick. Zach, the script keeper, been staying home out of the office, away from all of us virus carriers, and the Reverend Dr. Joe P., well, he already had it. And we've been safe around him just to minimize the uh, very small possibility that he could theoretically get it again. Pretty sure my daughter Monroe has it right now. She tested negative, but has since started showing symptoms. And I think my son Kyler has so far dodged it or is uh, asymptomatic. And I'm extremely grateful that none of us ended up in the hospital We all skipped suffering from any severe and scary respiratory symptoms. For me, mostly about a week of the worst body aches I've ever had and so many trips to the bathroom that continue. uh, Just the last one was about half an hour ago. Super fun. Pretty sure about McGill popped off my butthole several times. Uh, So much fun. All that toilet paper stocked up on months ago has been coming in real handy. Uh, So glad it's mostly behind me now. Thanks for the well wishes. I I hope you all, if you do get it, and be careful. I hope you don't get it any worse than I had it. COVID's been spiking here in Coeur d'Alene. Uh, the hospitals are currently basically at max capacity. Uh, some are at max capacity, shipping people over to Seattle because there's just no fucking beds. I uh, hope that changes soon so everybody who needs medical treatment can get it. Fucking 2020! Uh, let's get some fun stuff now. <laughs> uh, I've been cracking up this morning at one of Logan Keith, our Art Warlock's new designs. Awesome new law office of Kemper, uh, Yahim, uh, and uh, Kroll, uh, Shrub Slut Tea in the store at badmagicmerch.com. And, and I'm saying that wrong, actually. It's Chase, Kemper, uh, and Kroll, the Shrub Slut Tea. Uh, very much like a Better Call Saul vibe. Uh, check it out. It cracks me up very, very much. Uh, also, happy Halloween to everybody. Uh, didn't, didn't feel like... Um, doesn't feel like, excuse me, Halloween right now or like Halloween's coming up. It's weird. This year just feels so weird. Time just feels very odd. Uh, I don't think a lot of trick-or-treating is going to happen, but you know what? You can dress up at home and just eat your own candy, I guess. Uh, I know the Nexium cult isn't necessarily a spooky topic. Creepy, but not necessarily spooky. But guess what? Have another podcast with nothing but spooky topics. If you want some late October chills, check out Scared to Death if you haven't done so already. Almost 60 episodes now. Literally hundreds of paranormal horror stories uh, that have now been told, become a creeper, a peeper if you haven't done so already. And uh, and that's it. I feel a little um, scattered, but I, I I prepped into the last second. Some heady stuff in this one. I think I got it. I, clear, I didn't spend as much time on the announcements as the actual narrative. That's where my focus was. And I'm very excited to tell you this story. Uh, I'm excited to end a crazy week recording this this past Friday. And, uh, and hopefully have a calmer week next week. Uh, so let's get to culty. Let's learn about a cult that hung around for roughly 20 years, a cult that is technically just barely still alive, a cult that is fascinating. Let's get to the bottom of Nexium's pyramid of fuckery, cult, cult, cult. 
All right, feel settled in now. Uh, we, we've covered lots of cults on Time Suck, but we've, we've yet to cover a cult quite like Nexium. The closest we've probably gotten is Scientology, which only makes sense because Nexium's founder, Keith Raniere, borrowed some terminology and concepts from Scientology when he was engineering his new cult. Like Scientology, Nexium posed as an organization providing a path to personal empowerment, an organization that included notable celebrities who made huge donations to the cause. I say posed past tense because while there are still a handful of followers, you can't really become a new follower because the MLM cult uh, that this, you know, this cult is based in no longer open for business and its leaders are either in jail or waiting to go to jail. Hard to put on empowerment and corporate leadership retreats when you're behind bars. Uh, like Scientology, Nexium wasn't based in any existing religion or really religion at all. It's the rare Western cult that didn't spring forth in some way from some form of Christianity. Unlike Scientology, Nexium uh, never able to become classified as a religion. Uh, on the surface, very corporate executive leadership seminars, uh, but it wasn't really that. Uh, that's what it was supposed to be, supposed to seem to be leadership training. Had it been given more time to grow, I do feel like eventually it would have morphed into some type of pseudo-religion. It certainly seemed to be evolving in that direction. The Nexium cult blended elements of self-help programs, women's and men's groups, corporate leadership seminars, summer camps even. The thing that Keith borrowed the most from was multi-level marketing, a marketing strategy that actually has a lot of crossover with cult tactics. And within this web of fuckery, a secret group within a group called DOS formed that helped to, or offered, excuse me, to help women achieve their own empowerment goals by agreeing to become slaves to a female master a female master who would demand that they have sex with their master, Vanguard, a.k.a. Keith Raniere. Weird way to become empowered. This whole story is so fucking weird. Some of these women even agreed to be branded like human cattle. They rationalized this as just another exercise, an expression of loyalty, an empowerment exercise, like many of Nexium's other strange exercises. These assholes, assholes sold people on empowerment by getting them to do just the opposite by getting them to subjugate themselves to another's sick will. Pretty amazing mindfuck to pull off. Uh, the only thing Nexium ever had to do with empowerment was just saying that word over and over. Today, in order to better understand the world uh, that Nexium was born from, we're going to go over how multi-level marketing and pyramid schemes work, including some of the most famous schemes of all time. Then we'll dive into Nexium specifically following the life and times of its supposedly one-of-a-kind genius, really more of a typical master of lies leader, Keith Raniere, right up to and then through the arrest of many of Nexium's leadership in 2018 on a variety of charges, including sex trafficking and child pornography. And as I record this, the group still lives on with Keith uh, leading a few devoted, just can't let go followers from prison. I find it especially interesting how fresh all of this is. Most of the cults we've covered here existed long enough uh, ago for us to possibly feel like, wow, can't believe we meat sacks used to fall for that. Thank God we're smarter than that now. Don't get to do that today. People, people are still falling for this shit right now. Odds are there are other cults operating at this very moment that we will soon, uh, you know, uh, be talking about here on Time Suck, covering in future episodes. Cults yet to be brought down. What's especially troubling about today's cult is how successful its members were and or are. The people who fell for Keith's bullshit, many of them very successful, seemingly very intelligent people. People you wouldn't, or at least I wouldn't, expect to fall into a cult. At least not really in or at least not until you really dive into their story. That makes a little more sense. If you're a big-time spiritual seeker, be careful. You might find that enlightenment you seek, or you might really get taken advantage of. 
Today's suck is a good reminder that you always have to keep your guard up. No shortage of con artists out there in the world. Probably never will be. Uh, seemingly successful and confident folks pushing get-rich-quick schemes and hack-your-brain-to-solve-all-your-life-problems-type philosophies still attract a lot of interest. Such a sexier pitch than a pitch of work really hard for a really long time and maybe you'll get ahead. It just doesn't seem to have quite the same appeal, does it? Who wants to just put their head down and bust their ass for years and slowly grind forward when someone else is promising you that you can skip all that shit if you just listen to them and give them some of your money? Give them thousands to quickly earn millions. What are you waiting for? Stop living in fear and go for it. Give me all your fucking money. Personally, I favor a more pragmatic approach. I think your best odds for career success, for example, lie in first assessing where your talents are. And second, looking at the job market, figuring out where your career talents are most uh, suited, figuring out within that slice of the economic pie what you will enjoy doing the most what will fulfill you the most, your odds of success always go up. If you enjoy what you're doing because then you work that much harder, then third, give that job everything you have. Don't live above your means. Spend only what you can afford. Make purchases based on need more often than want. But that philosophy, again, that's just not that sexy. Good old pragmatism. Rewarding the patient time and time again. But who has time for patience? We live in a give-it-to-me-now society. Let me post those status shots on socials today. My philosophy of personal fulfillment is to write down what you want. Pretty simple. What do you want in a relationship? Write it down. There's power in seeing it written in front of you. What do you want to What do you want to live? Write that shit down. What makes you feel happy? Write it down. If you're lucky enough to make it to old age, what kind of life do you want to look back on? What would fill you with pride? What legacy do you want to live or leave, excuse me, when you die? Write all that shit down. Hard to get what you want out of life if you don't really know what you want. You know, you can't just have it be a vague concept and expect to achieve it. I write goals down, specific goals all the time. I write personal reminders. Put those words where I can see them, where I can see them every day, where I can't escape from them, right? You gotta do that to hold yourself accountable. And that really is the gist of my philosophy. Uh, I could dig into little deviations and you know some more intricate details, but that's basically it. And I just gave it away for free like a fucking idiot. Damn it. Didn't even try and make any of you my sex slaves. Didn't even try and charge you 10 grand for a seminar. I don't even have one branded lady, let alone a harem. I'm a shit cult leader. Forget everything I just said, cult of the curious member. You'll never be happy or successful unless you buy into my secret esoteric knowledge, okay, motherfucker? You're a dirty little ignorant sad worm, and you always will be until you buy my secrets. Buy my secrets! Let me fuck some knowledge into you. My secrets are mostly conveyed through fucking. Do you want to keep struggling, or do you want to be fucked into success? Hail Nimrod. Only Nimrod has the answers you seek, and only I am his horny prophet. <laughs> really wondering what my neighbors in the office complex are thinking right now. I should start coming to work in my cult robe to really make them nervous. But seriously, real improvement regarding your life circumstances, emotional or financial, generally takes a lot of focused hard work, right, to make meaningful improvements. Always has, always will. And dirty birds like Keith Raniere, they know that. They for sure know that. Cult leaders of the world, they know that there are always going to be people who just hate to face that fact. There's going to be people, uh, you know, wanting a shortcut, and they're always going to be lurking around to take advantage of those people, to manipulate the desire of those who want some guru to give them a magical shortcut. And speaking of taking shortcuts, let's go over what a multi-level marketing scheme is, right? The promise of a shortcut. More money, more happiness, faster than a traditional job. And MLM, that's what Nexium started out as. According to a 2017 report, the World Federation of Direct Selling found that there were 116 million independent distributors in the world working under various MLM companies. Is that number way higher than you thought it would be? It's way higher than I expected. 
MLMs are multi-level marketing companies or businesses that sell their products through distributors rather than through retail or online stores. Pretty simple structure. In a normal or traditional business model, the product goes from the manufacturer to a wholesale distributor, then to a store, then to the buyer. But in MLMs, the manufacturer sends the merchandise directly to the distributor, usually to one person. Where the multi-level part comes in, based on the fact that the existing workers are paid a percentage of new worker sales, new workers they bring to the company. The more salespeople you personally recruit to sell underneath you, the more money you make. And you need to recruit people to actually have a chance at making any real money in an MLM because even if you're able to sell your entire, your entire inventory, you only make a very small percentage of what you sell because the MLM company gets a cut and every, every distributor up the ladder from you gets a cut as well. No one's quite sure when these companies started, you know, uh, doing these tactics, like when MLMs first showed up. Avon seems to be the oldest MLM in the world. At the very least, it's the oldest one still in operation today. You've probably heard of that infamous makeup company founded way back in 1860 or 1886 in New York City. The second oldest MLM, I doubt you can guess that one. You really got you really to know your MLM history to get this one. Most sources point to Walkers a weird California vitamin company founded in 1932. Walkers like Avon still around. Unlike Avon, uh, not, doing, not doing real well. I don't think they're doing billions in annual worldwide sales. They sell uh, organic sea products. Basically, they sell everything from vitamins to dog food to cleaning supplies, all of it made in some way, shape, or form from uh, seaweed. Doesn't seem to be real popular. I'm amazed they're still around at all. Hard to build a gigantic business empire when your entire pitch is essentially that seaweed is super cool. Listen to this little excerpt from one of their promo videos. Although their forms and uses are complex and diverse, we know them simply as seaweed. <laughs> That early 80s promotional video is still the one embedded on their website. Uh, not an indicator that they're crushing it. And, and this type of business, while not everyone thinks it's ethical, is definitely legal. 1979, the Federal Trade Commission ruled that MLMs were not illegal in the United States. And in April 2006, the FTC ruled that as long as an MLM company provides appropriate information to prospective participants so they can make an informed decision about whether or not to buy in, it's kosher. Uh, of course, companies don't always do this. And how much information is quote-unquote appropriate, that's pretty subjective. Probably the most famous legal American-based MLM company currently is Amway, a company that primarily sells health, beauty, and home care products. Amway, founded in 1959, just 12 miles east of Grand Rapids, Michigan, and Ada. I have performed a number of stand-up comedy shows in Grand Rapids over the years, and I have made a lot of jokes about Amway, and they have never gone over well, like at all. Creates a lot of tension in the room. <laughs> People in an MLM seem to be very sensitive to being teased about it. Always gotten the vibe that folks around, uh, you know, Grand Rapids are real touchy about Amway being labeled as a multi-level marketing scheme, uh, probably because that's exactly what the fuck it is. It's not a pyramid scheme, but it is an MLM. How does Amway work? They make home, beauty, and nutritional products, stuff like bleach, dish soap, uh, meal replacement bars, smoothies, lotions, toothpaste, whips, throwing knives, satanic altar candles, cock rings, pipe bombs, robot spider monkeys, and more. I might have made up those last few, but the rest were legit. And they sell a lot of this shit. They do almost $10 billion a year in sales. Some years they have done $10 billion in sales worldwide. They're huge. 
And each Amway product is assigned a certain point total. And the more products you sell or those you've recruited to sell underneath you sell, the more points you earn. And the more points you earn, the more money you make. Simple, right? Not really. I would have to study their fucking point system for at least uh, two, three days to get my head mostly around it. It's a complicated, in my opinion, algorithm that factors in how many points each person beneath you sells, also factoring in how far those people are beneath you level-wise, also factoring in a certain percentage of each sale you make that changes based on the total volume of sales you and those beneath you make, and well, it makes my head hurt. Many pages of diagrams and equations are required to explain it all in their own company literature. I downloaded some PDFs, I watched some of their tutorial videos, and it still feels very confusing. But I'm sure the right charismatic Amway seller could break it down, and if I wasn't so skeptical, have me convinced that not only is it easy to understand, it's also impossible not to make so much money! <laughs> what are you doing not making all that Amway money? I don't know. It just all feels very uh, less than honest to me. Uh, just less than honest. Uh, you know, like, why not just buy shit from a store? Buy it directly. It's a more pure transaction to me. But if it works for you, fine. I mean, their products do look good. And if you don't feel taken advantage of, maybe you're not being taken advantage of. Just, just not for me. I remember being approached about Amway by the brother of a girl I was dating right after high school. And my immediate reaction then was, I don't want to be the guy hassling everyone I know to buy fucking soap and vitamins. Still feel that way. And Avon and Amway and Walker's weird seaweed shit vitamins. Just three of so many MLMs worldwide. So many companies offering new recruits the opportunity to start their own business under a parent company. And these MLMs, almost always make lofty promises about how much people can earn just right away, just a few months. Start making millions now. Don't miss out on a once-in-a-lifetime wealth-building opportunity. Uh, these companies set you up with your own business for a small percentage of the profits. And in turn, you get, you get to empower people to start their businesses. It's an empowerment train. Choo-choo, all aboard the empowerment train. Uh, MLM companies tend to really push a perceived sense of autonomy and empowerment. You're not, you're not buying into a shitty business model. You're starting your own small business. You're a business owner, asterisk. You're a business owner who has to sell their products, <laughs> which on the surface isn't so different than owning like a, like a franchise, like a Sonic drive-in or Taco Bell, except here's the big difference with me. If you own a Taco Bell, you're not badgering your grandma to also own a Taco Bell. You're not telling her that she should also open a Taco Bell and then convince her friends to open more Taco Bells underneath her Taco Bell. You're not starting a pyramid of Mexican pizzas and Locos Taco Supremes. Does that make sense? I think you can see why a lot of people find MLMs, at the very least, just super fucking annoying. You're not, just, you're not just trying to get new customers all the time, like a normal business owner. You're trying to indoctrinate your customers into selling the same shit that you're selling. And that way, to me, it feels culty. Uh, one newer MLM I find especially shady is LuLaRoe, founded in, founded in 2012 in Corona, California. They sell women's apparel. Unlike Amway, which does not require you to buy any inventory, you just, you know, direct people to Amway's website. Like, it's like you have a little derivative slice of their website, so you get your points and all that shit. Uh, with LuLaRoe, you have to buy their inventory and then sell it. So a lot more risk with their business model. And when they first hit the scene, you had to buy $6,000 worth of shitty women's clothes to get started. 6000 bucks. That's a big commitment right off the rip. Enough to really fuck over someone who's uh, only getting into LuLaRoe in the first place because they're low on cash. And then, you know, once you spent that money, you, you don't get to choose your inventory. You didn't. The company sent you whatever was in stock, and then you were expected just to sell it. Uh, LuLaRoe currently has more than a dozen big lawsuits pending against them uh, from disgruntled former consultants. I hope it bankrupts them. Now you only have to spend $495, and you get to pick your products. Products that are notoriously shitty. Very low quality. 
People keep signing up thanks mainly to the testimonials of a few members who have legitimately become millionaires selling this stuff. And you can technically become a millionaire by joining an MLM. That's the big appeal. That's the basic dream they sell you, an almost limitless financial ceiling, which is true technically. It's just really unlikely that you'll be the one to do that. According to the Consumer Awareness Institute, only one quarter of people who get involved in MLMs manage to actually ever make any money at all. 75% of the people who try this shit, three out of four, will literally never, ever make any money. None at all. Of the 25% who will make money, 14% will make less than $5,000 total. 6% will make between $5,000 and $10,000. Just 3% will make between $10,000 and $24,000. Another 3% will make $25,000 or above. That's a lifetime total. And just 0.05% will ever make $100,000 and above. Just one in 2,000. No figures for millionaires are listed, but I'm guessing it's way less than one in 2,000. As you can see, you do have a chance. A better chance of getting rich than you uh, do if you just buy a lottery ticket, but the chances of making decent money from MLMs, pretty slim. And a lot of people lose money. They don't tell you that. They never recoup their initial investments. 27% of respondents to an AARP foundation study said uh, uh, said they only broke even during their time in an MLM company. And for those who do make a little bit of money off an MLM, they generally have to work so hard for it. A website, magnifymoney.com, surveyed over a 1,000 multi-level marketing scheme participants from a variety of MLMs, found that most people, when it was all said and done, were making less than 70 cents an hour. And that's before deducting their business costs. And 60% of the participants said they had made less than $500 in the past five years. Not exactly enticing numbers when you look at the cold, hard facts. So any company that says, uh, you know, uh, you're gonna make hundreds or thousands of dollars in just a few weeks, That's the exception to the rule, not the rule. Good to keep that in mind. All right, now we've gone over what a legal MLM looks like, a place where you might make some money if you work really hard, and even then, you probably won't make much. Now let's go over what an illegal MLM looks like, the infamous pyramid scheme. I'm sure you've heard that term. A multi-level marketing company becomes an illegal pyramid scheme when the salespeople encourage you to buy a small stake in one of Egypt's ancient pyramids under the pretense that you can turn around sell that stake to someone else at a pyramid profit. That's one form. Another form of a pyramid scheme is when you're sold a piece of sandstone brick from one of the pyramids and you're told to sell that to a museum at an enormous profit. Uh, Another especially shady pyramid scheme will claim to sell you a timeshare apartment located inside of one of Egypt's pyramids. And then your job is to find other people who will go stay in your timeshare for a profit. And then when those people realize they've been conned, when they go to Egypt, get there and get arrested for trying to break into a pyramid apartment, the pyramid comes crashing down. And that is where the name pyramid scheme comes from. It's all about Egypt's pyramids. And uh, last thing, I really hope at least one person bought that bullshit, then pushed pause on this episode and is currently trying to convince someone that pyramid schemes have everything to do with actual Egyptian pyramids because that's fucking crazy talk. No, a real pyramid scheme is an MLM that doesn't actually sell any products to customers. They simply just recruit new members, new members who have to pay to join, who then turn around and recruit other members who then pay them. Let me illustrate with this uh, with an example. Founder Dave Dingleberry sits atop of Shit Mountain, represented by the number one even though he's a walking pile of number two. Mr. Dingleberry then recruits 10 second-tier turds to the level directly below him. Each new turd must issue him a cash payment for the privilege of standing on the slopes of Shit Mountain. Not only do those buy-in fees funnel directly into Dave's pocket, but each of the 10 new members must then recruit 10 
tier three turds for their own uh, for a total of 100 dumps. And these tier three turds must pay fees to their tier two recruiters who must then send a percentage of their take back up to Dave Dingleberry and so on and so on and so on. Now, this is different from a multi-level marketing scheme because there's a negligible or non-existent product. The main product, sometimes the only product in a pyramid scheme is literally recruiting new investors. In the mid-2000s, a pyramid scheme scam swept through Ireland where people were asked to invest 10,000 euros, around 14,000 US dollars at the time, uh, and also to entice other friends to invest. The money was then paid to a fictitious headquarters in Germany, supposedly in Germany to get around Irish tax laws. Investors were told they'd get 80,000 euros in profit when after a predetermined period of time, they hopped over to Germany to collect those profits. But no one collected shit because the money never went to any type of investment. People just got sent on a real expensive wild goose chase. They just threw their money away. Altogether, before the Irish government shut it all down, the scammers behind the shit mountain cost those uh, bottom-tier pyramid turds almost $30 million. There was another pyramid scheme that ran in the U.S. in the mid-'80s called United Sciences of America. William Shatner, Captain Kirk, endorsed them. And while I couldn't find a video of him speaking to this, searching for that video led me to William Shatner singing Elton John's Rocket Man at the 1978 Science Fiction Film Awards, and I need to share a snippet of this because it is one of the biggest what the fuck is going on here clips I have come across in quite some time. Please listen to this. I think it's gonna be a long, long time till Touchdown bring me around again and find I'm not the man they think I am at home. Oh, no, no, no. I'm a rocket man. What the fuck is going on there? Who thought that was a good idea? Ah, I have no other info to share about the United Sciences of America uh, pyramid scheme. I just, I literally brought that one up just as an excuse to play part of that clip for you. Uh, you're welcome. Uh, please listen to the rest of it if you ever get a chance. The, the, the link is in the YouTube or in the show notes. Now let's round out our understanding of these type of scams by talking about another racket related to MLMs and pyramid schemes. And then we'll move on. Uh, this is the Ponzi scheme. With Ponzi schemes, investors give money to a portfolio manager. Then when they want their money back, they're paid out with incoming funds contributed by other investors, later investors. So unlike a typical pyramid scheme, there's just two levels. There's the manager level. The manager makes all the money. And on the other level, there's everyone risking being royally fucked over by said manager. The scheme is uh, named after one Charles Ponzi, an Italian man who a century ago in Boston, Massachusetts, figured out that international reply coupons, a type of document you can send with a letter to pay postage for the reply, could be exchanged for stamps. Now, the U.S. Postal Service stopped selling these in 2013 because not enough people wanted them and because they're fucking confusing. I know a scheme based on coupons and stamps sounds stupid and boring. Stay with me. It only started out as being about that and then quickly became its own thing. In places where the value of the currency was low, like post-World War I Italy, these IRCs could be bought in exchange for stamps in the U.S. where they had a higher value. So basically, these coupons created a potential financial loophole. You could buy the equivalent of a U.S. stamp with Italian money overseas, pay a lot less than it was worth, and then sell it in the U.S. for an immediate profit, in theory. Ponzi quickly figured out how to sell the possibility of an almost immediate positive financial return on an investment to a number of investors. He set up his own company, the Securities Exchange Co Company, in January of 1920 in Boston. And in the first month, 18 people invested a total of $1,800. And he paid them promptly the very next month but he did not pay them with money he made buying IRCs for less than they were worth back in Italy and then selling them for a profit in the US. No, he paid them with more investment money obtained from new investors. 
and the Ponzi scheme was born. As time moved forward, Ponzi realized it was actually way harder to change the IRCs into cash than he'd first assumed. It worked in theory, but not in real life. And the more IRC exchanges he sold, the more impractical it became to cash them all in. It became a logistical impossibility. For example, for the initial 18 investors of January 1920 for their $1,800 investment, it would have taken 53,000 postal coupons to realize the profits he sold them on getting. That's a lot of coupons. And that's just for the first 18 investors. For the subsequent 15,000 investors, he would have had to fill several Titanic-sized ships with postal coupons just to ship them to the U.S. from Europe. He'd need to transport millions upon millions of these coupons. So Ponzi gave up on ever completing a coupon transaction. Once he got going, he realized he didn't need to do anything with them. He just needed to keep selling more and more people on the money they could make with said coupons. So he could just keep, uh, you know, his house of cards scam from caving in on itself. And for a little while, this worked beautifully. Investors kept investing and reinvesting, especially after July 24th, 1920, when the Boston Post printed a favorable article on Ponzi and his scheme. Soon Ponzi was making $250,000 a day, a day in 1920. It was as if he had literally built a cash machine that just printed money, but it, but it didn't last long. By August, authorities had caught on. On August 11th, it all came crashing down. First, the Post came out with a front page story about some of his criminal activities in Montreal they'd uncovered 13 years earlier, which included a forgery conviction. That sent a wave of investors to withdraw their funds. And when more people started to withdraw than people were investing, the Ponzi scheme fell apart real quick. Uh, that afternoon, the bank commissioner, where the pawns held his money, froze his funds due to numerous irregularities. The gig was up. After his money was frozen and investigators had begun to examine his investment firm, the pawns knew he was going down, turned himself in, and was imprisoned. And most of his investors were shit out of luck. Some lost all their money. Some got a little back. In total, they lost about $20 million in 1920, approximately $193 million in today's dollars. One more Ponzi scheme example, uh, just because it's interesting— and more recent and fairly well-known. Let's talk about Bernie Madoff. Bernie Madoff's Ponzi scheme collapsed in 2008 and cost his investors roughly $18 billion, so much money. Madoff was at one time the chairman of NASDAQ. He knew all too well what he was doing with investments. He started his firm in 1960 as a penny stock trader with 5,000 bucks, money earned from working as a lifeguard and sprinkler installer. And the way Madoff claimed he was investing was complicated. We won't get into that here, but he wasn't actually doing much investing. He was just putting money in a checking account. Investors who gained access to Madoff typically did so on word-of-mouth referral, believing that they had entered the inner circle of a money-making genius. And his scheme began to unravel in the fall of 2008 when the market downturn accelerated with the real estate market collapse. As the market's decline accelerated, investors tried to withdraw $7 billion from his firm. And to pay off those investors, Madoff needed new money from new investors. But due to the market's decline, those, were, those people just weren't coming in. By November of 2008, the balance in his business account where he stored all of his investment money dropped to dangerously low levels. He just had barely enough in the account to meet his payroll on November 19th. By December, he was stalling with investors. He didn't have the money to pay all of their withdrawal requests. On December 10th, he suggested to his sons, Mark and Andrew, that their firm pay out over $170 million in bonuses two months ahead of schedule from $200 million in assets the firm still had. Mark and Andrew confronted their father, asked him, like, what are you fucking doing? How can the firm pay bonuses if they can't even pay investors? And at that point, Madoff asked his sons to follow him into his apartment where he admitted that he was, quote, finished and that the asset management arm of his firm was in fact nothing more than a Ponzi scheme. In his words, one big lie. Mark and Andrew then reported their dad to authorities, how sad for them, to realize that their father's business, a business he'd hired them, you know, uh, to, to help him with was a giant con 
It wasn't a financial guru, just a big fucking liar. On June 29th, 2009, Madoff was sent to 150 years in prison. He's in prison right now. So pyramid scheme, Ponzi scheme, MLM company. Why do these people do it? I think the simple answer is greed. They do it because they want a lot of fucking money. Uh, you know, and uh, this type of crime, when you can get away with it, it pays a lot more than running a legitimate investment company. Also, and I'm guessing a bit here, power and control. And who else loves power and control? Cult leaders. They love to have godlike influence over the lives of their followers. I wonder if some people who run these financial schemes love the con itself as much as the money that comes with it. I wonder if they truly love to con people to prove to themselves over and over again, over and over again that they're smarter than all the people who've trusted them, even if they're not smarter, just less scrupulous. And what about the people who buy into these schemes? Why do they keep falling for too-good-to-be-true investment promises? Some MLMs are able to drag their profitless participants along the ride for years. How? Because MLMs often affect their victims in a psychological way similar to how a cult affects cult members. According to Rick Allen Ross, an expert cult deprogrammer, cults and MLMs are incredibly similar. Over the years, Ross has helped deprogram more than 500 cult victims and MLMs pop up so frequently in his deprogramming attempts and his line of work that an entire chapter of his book, Cults Inside Out, is devoted specifically to an Amway intervention. And Amway is actually where Nexium cult leader Keith Raniere got his start. Uh, according to Ross, most destructive cults and MLMs share three defining characteristics. One, a charismatic leader who is worshipped and revered. Two, a culture of coercive persuasion or thought reform in which all members of the group are taught to think alike and isolate themselves from anyone who questions their devotion. And three, sexual, economic, or other forms of exploitation of group members by leaders. Obviously, with MLMs, the exploitation, usually economic, not sexual. Uh, like a cult leader, the MLM leader controls everything regarding how individual members operate within their group. Charmed by the opportunity of making money, having a community, people suddenly find themselves under the control of a powerful institution. Like cult leaders, MLMs heavily promote the success of the distributors who do profit, and they shame those who don't. If in a cult, you don't believe the leader is the one true God or a prophet of the one true God— Right? That's that's not the, the leader's problem. That's your problem. You just don't have enough faith, you maggot. You don't make money in an MLM. That's not because the MLM system isn't built for everyone to succeed. It's because you aren't trying hard enough to succeed. You're the problem, not the system. System's perfect, maggot. Worship the system. Sell those vitamins, you lazy fuck. Hail the good God, Amway. Uh-oh. I just felt 10 Central Michigan members leave the cult securities. Uh, once people begin working for the company, the MLM doesn't tolerate questions or cr criticism, right? Do not defy thy God, Amway. Hail, Amway. JK. <laughs> I think Amway is probably the most harmless MLM group, by the way. Just cracks me up to tease him. Uh, Douglas M. Brooks, an attorney who represents victims of pyramid schemes, describes what often happens when a distributor questions an MLM's authority. He says, you're trained to avoid people who question whether this is a viable business or not, which is exactly the same technique that cults use. They try to isolate you from people who question your belief system. I've been contacted by a number of people who deal with cult survivors, and some of their clients are former MLM people. As time goes on and participants lose money, their self-esteem diminishes. They feel at fault for their failures. Anytime they attempt to blame the MLM system, the blame is shifted back on them by other distributors who are unwilling to accept criticism about their company. Like a cult, MLMs also tend to target the desperate. Who do cults go after? Often they go after people who are down in their luck in some way. People who are lonely, spiritually hurting, lost souls, desperately looking for a home, lonely souls, looking for a sort of family. MLMs typically go after people who are financially hurting, people who don't seem to have, or at least don't feel like they have, many other financial options. 
Now let's talk about some very fascinating psychological principles uh, that we've talked about to some degree here in the past in the suck verse, but definitely worth discussing here again. The key to why people throw more money away after initially losing money in a shady MLM lies in the psychological principle of doubling down. When our brains try to prevent us from acknowledging that we've made a bad decision. Doubling down on a bad decision is the result of two psychological processes at work, cognitive dissonance and the backfire effect. I find all of this so interesting and kind of a bit depressing, but uh, also interesting. Uh, The former involves the difficulty in reconciling two opposing ideas. Uh, In the 1956 book, When Prophecy Fails, psychologist Leon Festinger and his co-authors describe what happened to a UFO cult when the mothership failed to arrive at the appointed time. Instead of admitting error, quote, members of the group sought frantically to convince the world of their beliefs. They made a series of desperate attempts to erase their rankling dissonance by making prediction after prediction in the hope that one would eventually come true. This UFO cult scenario is an example of cognitive dissonance the stress we experience when we hold two contradictory thoughts, beliefs, opinions, or attitudes. Cognitive dissonance is what we feel when the self-concept, I'm smart, I'm kind, I'm convinced this belief is true, is threatened by evidence that we did something that was not smart, that maybe we did something that was not kind and hurt another person or ourselves, that the belief is not true. To get away from these uncomfortable feelings, you either have to modify your view and accept the new evidence and come to terms with the fact that you fucked up and made some terrible choices, or you can deny all incoming evidence that points to you fucking up. And if you choose the path of denial, uh uh-oh, you started walking down a real shitty path that has literally never made anyone a better person. Uh, When you refuse to admit your mistakes, you train yourself to be less open to constructive criticism, which is not good if you care at all about evolving and improving. Constructive criticism helps hone skills, correct bad habits, improve yourself overall. Ironically, doubling down on a shady MLM company that claims to empower you, but does the exact opposite, makes you stop growing as a person, right? When the whole reason, you know, you were there was to grow as a person. And I get it, you know, taking criticism, it's not fun. I struggle with it every week. Uh, Getting nice emails, good reviews, that's a blast, (laughs) right? Getting critical emails, I definitely sting sometimes. Uh, And it stings the most when I know they're right. I got some emails regarding the American riot suck uh, that, that, that stung. You know, they stung because I realized I did get some things wrong. And, you know, and that doesn't line up with how I like to see myself as someone who works really hard to try and get things right. That I perhaps didn't analyze some evidence to the best of my ability, that I used the wrong descriptive terms, that I, you know, kind of shorted uh, a portion of the episode and should have spent more time on it. It really bummed me out because the criticism was correct. After beating myself up for a while, I had to remind myself that it's okay to be wrong as long as you use that experience to motivate yourself to work harder to be right the next time, to improve. I had to remind myself it's okay to feel stupid, sometimes to be stupid, okay to feel inadequate, uh, that I should use those feelings again to improve. What's not okay is to brush off criticism and just think, fucking nailed it! Ha, they're wrong! Good job, Cummins, you're the best. That type of arrogance, great way to quickly become the worst. And I only bring up myself here as an example because I'm amazed how hard admitting to be wrong is for so many people. I feel like many people see it as a sign of weakness. Don't do that. It should be seen as a sign of strength. Be strong enough to admit that sometimes, yeah, you're fucking weak. Everybody fucks up. And the person who can't do that, the person who never apologizes, the person who can't handle criticism, who has no humility, ah, watch out for them. Never trust that person. That's the kind of person who either runs or joins a cult, who either runs or or joins a shady MLM, right? Refusing to accept that you messed up. That's a great way for a member or follower to fall further into something like a cult or an MLM. Instead of cutting your losses, realizing you made some shit decisions, and getting out. Uh, The other psychological process I mentioned that keeps people from throwing away uh, more money 
or that keeps people, excuse me, not from, keeps people throwing away more money after an initial loss is the backfire effect. The backfire effect illustrates sadly how our brains in some ways, they know work too good. This describes this frustrating concept when uh, being corrected actually makes some people feel more correct in their original, original faulty belief. This was originally proven, this counterintuitive principle, by two grad students, Brendan Nyhan and Jason Reifler in 2010, based on their research of a single survey item. They asked a bunch of people whether they believed that immediately before the U.S. invasion, Iraq had active weapons of mass destruction, but before U.S. forces arrived, Saddam Hussein was able to hide or destroy them. The people who responded, yes, that's what happened, were then presented with evidence to the contrary, well-documented evidence that Saddam had not hid or destroyed the weapons, and then they were asked again, did Saddam hide or destroy the weapons? To the researchers' surprise, the participants said they still believed he did, and many of them now believe this to an even greater degree than before after being presented with evidence to the contrary. How fucking maddening is that? Interestingly, this concept may hold the key to why arguments online rarely get solved. According to David McCraney in his book, You Are Not So Smart, what should be evident from the studies on the backfire effect is you can never win an argument online. When you start to pull out facts and figures, hyperlinks and quotes, you are actually making the opponent feel as though they are even more sure of their position than before you started the debate. As they match your fervor, the same thing happens in your school. The backfire effect pushes both of you deeper into your original beliefs, correct or not. How depressing, right? For some of us, uh, when our deeply held beliefs are challenged with contradictory facts, not opinions, facts, instead of relenting to the new knowledge, we instead double down on our now proven to be incorrect beliefs and defend them even more instead of changing our minds. Why the fuck do some of us do that? It's so incredibly illogical, so annoying. Unfortunately, we do it because we're not cold, emotionless robots and our brains aren't built on just logic. According to researchers, as human beings, our brains love consistency more than logic sometimes. We want to stay consistent with our self-image and we prioritize information that is consistent with our current beliefs over other information, even when the other information is actually correct. The backfire effect helps us stay consistent with our previous beliefs and patterns by strengthening those beliefs when they're threatened. Psychologically, it's easier, more comforting to stay consistent than it is to be right. Change is stressful, even when it's the right change. And right there, that's why it's so hard to fucking argue about politics. Doesn't matter if you're right. Some people will just never ever hear your truth or the truth. And this is also why it's so damn hard to get some people out of a cult or to get them out of an MLM, right? Or in the case of the Nexium cult, why it was hard to get people to recognize they were in an MLM and in a cult. The more facts people threw at them about how shitty their cult was, the more they doubled down and defended it, the more entrenched they became. And this is why, and I know this sounds crazy, if a cult ever gets their hooks into one of my kids, it's gonna be real hard for me not to just straight up fucking murder the leader. Feels like killing them would be a lot easier than trying to deprogram the followers, right? Murder. Sometimes I am very much morally in favor of it. Not kidding. Uh, too bad no one killed Keith Raniere. Long time ago. The world would have definitely been better off without that son of a bitch, that pile of shit. All right, let's explore the formation of Keith Raniere's manipulative MLM sex cult now in today's Time Suck Timeline. Right after today's sponsor break, this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But... 
what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything is that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off the list with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are designed by over 150 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations. Babbel has over 10 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. I've been working on my restaurant skills lately. ¿Cuál es el pescado del día? Excelente. Mi encanto pargo rojo frito. Y me gustaría un poco de huevo de naranja fresco. You may not know what I said, but my waiter in Mexico will, 
thanks to Babbel. Here's a special limited time deal for listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash timesuck. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash timesuck. Spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash timesuck. Rules and restrictions may apply. Huge thanks to our sponsors. We've gotten more of them lately, and we feel very, very lucky to have them. Uh, thank you for building this show up, uh, you meat sacks, and, and letting us get them. Now it's time suck. Timeline time. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time suck timeline. On August 26, 1960, Keith Ranieri is born in Brooklyn to middle-class parents, and with his arrival, the sky above New York suddenly crackles with explosive lightning. Angels fill the sky and blast their heavenly trumpets to announce his important entrance. A solar eclipse occurs at the exact moment the Chosen One floats out of his mother's virginal body, or none of that should happen. It was just another day. Uh, Keith's father, James, worked in advertising, and his mom, not actually named in any sources I can find, taught ballroom dancing. Family moved to Suffern, New York, 30 miles northwest of Manhattan, place once described by the New York Times as small-town American near the big city, when Keith was five. Neither parent, as far as I can tell, seemed to recognize that Keith was some sort of once-in-a-lifetime prodigy, a spiritual master. He was not, it seems, placed in any kind of school for the gifted. His dad would tell one of his girlfriends later, a Barbara Boucher, that Keith was super intelligent, and apparently Keith really ran with this. Barbara said that uh, James's dad relayed to her when he uh, told his son he was very intelligent, maybe even gifted, that with uh, Keith, it was almost like a switch went off. Suddenly overnight, he turned into like Jesus Christ. He was superior and better than everybody. He was a deity. He said it was that dramatic and profound. He went, he said it went right to his head. Sounds like a super fun kid. Uh, Keith's parents divorced when he was eight. His mom, who was living with a heart condition and who Keith references being somewhat of an alcoholic, became his sole caretaker. Dad wasn't around much. Then when he was 16, his mysterious mother mysteriously dies. Cult leaders, man. So hard to dig into their backstory sometimes because they love to hide it. Right? The more you know, people uh, know about their childhoods, the harder it is for them to lie about their childhoods. And he lied a lot, as we're going to find out. Around the same time, Keith dropped out of high school, moved to Albany, where he enrolled in the Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, America's oldest technological university. That actually is fairly impressive, not necessarily indicative of the genius Keith would later claim, but proof he was no dummy. Uh, RPI alumni include the current president of Marvel, one of the founders of Silicon Valley, uh, the co-founder of NVIDIA, the co-founder of Texas Instruments, the founder of Garmin, the founder of How Stuff Works, the inventor of the fucking microprocessor, a man known as the father of modern television, astronauts, tons of professional hockey players, senators, military commanders, on and on and on. It is a prestigious university. But you know who's not listed among the very long list of notable alumni? Boy genius Keith Ranieri. Keith will later claim that he received three degrees from RPI, math, physics, and biology. He claimed to have also minored in psychology and philosophy, but he did not. That's uh, nonsense. Records show him having just one degree, a bachelor's of science in biology. If he majored in anything else, it was bullshit. Keith would claim that he was a genius student, but his transcripts say otherwise. He maintained a 2.2 GPA at RPI. Not exactly genius level. C student. Uh, Keith would convince followers he spoke in full sentences at a year old, read by two years old, and taught himself to play concert-level piano at 12, the same year he allegedly learned high school math, all of it, in 19 hours. <laughs> exactly zero family members have come forward to validate these 100% unsubstantiated claims. 
Uh, Keith also claimed to have won an East Coast Judo Championship at the age of 12 and set a record for the 100-yard dash in New York as a teenage student. He was the smartest, fastest kid in all of New York. If only it was possible to validate or invalidate these additional claims, uh, it is. Ranieri, born in 1960, became a teen in 1972, which means he stopped being a teen in, in 1980. So if he set this record, it would have happened during that eight-year stretch, right? Well, the New York Sports Writers Reference website lists all New York State high school state champions from 1972 onward for outdoor track. Works out nicely for us here. 1977 was the last year the 100-yard dash was run. It then became the 100-meter dash, and no state champions also listed. And Keith Ranieri not listed on this fucking website anywhere. Weird that the kid who set the state all-time record never even won state. And what about his judo champion claim? Ranieri was 11 in 1971, the age he most often claimed he won that judo championship. Searching 1971 and going every year for a decade on either side of 71, there is not a single news report of Ranieri winning any judo championship in any of the 5,100 newspapers archived by newspapers.com, including Ranieri's hometown newspaper, the White Plain Journal News, White Plains, which might have thought it was newsworthy that an 11-year-old hometown boy defeated the assembled judo masters of the fucking entire East Coast. Another obvious lie. The only proof that Keith ever did this shit is Keith saying he did this shit. Uh, and big thanks to investigative journalist Frank Parlato, a man who helped take down Keith Holt for that information. Frank used to be the group's publicist before then dedicating his life to destroying this group once he found out how terrible they were. So yay, Frank. Hail, Frank. Uh, Keith also claimed to possess one of the top IQs in the entire world. This is my favorite nonsense claim of his. Because <laughs> it's so over the top. A Forbes article... He was on the cover of Forbes in 2003 when they were real suspicious about this guy. Uh, they were talking about how he's just a weird executive coach. Uh, stated that he claimed that his IQ was 240. 240 is fucking absurd. Any score over 160 is considered genius. The highest official score ever recorded, Marilyn Vosant, Parade Magazine's Ask Marilyn advice columnist, who logged a score of 228 as a kid, uh, recorded in the Guinness Book of World Records. So how did Keith score over 30 points higher than that? The short answer, of course, is that he, he didn't. Another lie. He used with great success to get people to follow him. His fake IQ, one of his biggest selling points, one of his most important recruiting weapons. He convinced follower after follower. He was literally the smartest man in the fucking world. And, and he had kind of proof for this, kind of. This has helped him sell this lie. He did get listed in the Australian 1989 Guinness Book of World Records for being one of the top three smartest people in the world, according to this uh, Super IQ uh, and part of the Super IQ group called Mega, like a Mensa-like collection of supposed geniuses requiring a minimum one in a million IQ level formed by philosopher and librarian Ronald K. Hofflin. But then this record was taken out of the book the very next year and it never show showed up in any other country's editions. In 1990, Guinness Worldwide retired the highest IQ category after concluding that IQ tests were too unreliable to designate a single record holder. Weird coincidence. Almost seems like after reviewing Keith's record, they realized he'd con them and they should just get the shit out of the book. If the people at Guinness won't accept a record, you know it's nonsense because they accept almost fucking everything. There's people with their names in this book for most, most toilet seats broken by the head in one minute. 46 by Kevin Shelley. Most watermelons chopped on the stomach in one minute. 25 by Jim Hunter. Right, their names are in the book. Keith, not so much. Got kicked out. Keith did take the mega IQ tests an at-home IQ test, which means it was real easy to cheat on it. And very few people took the test he took. It was never peer-reviewed. There's no way of knowing how tough this test was, how rare Keith's score is. 
So safe to say, like a lot of cult leaders, Keith made up this crazy, impressive backstory just to recruit people into his cult. Then at some point in the early 80s, Keith worked for Amway, the MLM we mentioned earlier. Sources don't provide an exact date. And at Amway, he would learn many of the tactics he would later put into use when he creates Nexium. Hail Amway! Blessed be the sacred vitamins and carpet cleaners! May the, may the Amway open and bestow quality organic protein bars among us. 1984. Keith is 24. Uh, we have the first known red flag appearing in regards to how truly monstrous this dude is. That year, Keith meets Gina Melita, a 15-year-old who performed with him at an RPI theater group that included members of the community. After meeting, they started going to arcades together, playing Pac-Man, hanging out, having soda. Keith describes himself as this genius, this judo champion. She's impressed. She thought it was cool to hang out with an older, accomplished, smarter guy who, who might help her uh, graduate from high school early, uh, early, as he promises. Then he takes her virginity, and they have a four-month relationship that she hides from her parents. Man, that's how you know that you're operating on a higher spiritual level, how you know you're a real guru. When you're 24 and you either can't get another adult to fuck you or worse, you'd prefer not to fuck other adults. Also in 1984, Gina Melita introduces Keith to another 15-year-old girl, Gina Hutchinson. Guessing you probably can tell where this is gonna go. Gina's older sister, Heidi, goes to the cops accusing Keith of having sex with her underage sister after catching Keith sneaking into her little sister's room one night through her bedroom window. Another indication of greatness when you're old enough to be a doctor and are climbing into the bedroom of a 15-year-old at night. Too bad Gina's dad wasn't home. Man, some 24-year-old breaks into my daughter's fucking room. I'm going to take great pleasure in taking some fucking batting practice swings against her skull. I'm going to paint the wall with their fucking brains. I hate this guy so much. Uh, have you seen pictures of him, by the way? He is so fucking punchable. And he looks like the dude who would do this. He straight up just looks like a pedo. And that's coming from a dude rocking a real creepy stash at the moment. I hope, I hope Keith gets savagely beaten in prison. Uh, Keith told Heidi he was an enlightened being, an enlightened being, excuse me, and that Gina was spiritually older than her physical age. That's a new one. No, I was not molesting a 15-year-old. I was having sex with a 30-year-old. She is older than me, spiritually. Uh, he tells authorities that Gina is a Buddhist goddess and that the two of them are meant to be together forever. And then charges are never pre pressed against him because he convinces Gina's parents that he's going to marry Gina. He does not. Years later, so sad, when Gina is 33, she goes to a Buddhist monastery in Woodstock, New York, and shoots herself in the head, killing herself. Hard not to wonder if Keith sent her down the path that eventually led to that sad and tragic conclusion. Dude is fucking poison. Around 1988, excuse me, not 98, 88, uh, Keith moves to a townhouse in a middle-class suburban development in Half Moon, just a few miles from Clifton Park's cluster of chain stores and restaurants in Albany. Years later, when he starts Nexium, followers will flock to Albany in droves. Uh, but before, before Nexium, uh, there is Consumers Byline. This is the first MLM Keith founded. He does this in 1990. It sells groceries, other goods at a discount to those who sign up for memberships. Uh, members are responsible for recruiting other members. At its height in the early 90s, Ranieri has 250,000 distributors nationwide and 173 direct employees. Local papers in Albany portray Keith as an eccentric, appealing genius, noting that he only slept a few hours a night. He's working so hard. He could juggle. He, he could ride a unicycle. How did the paper know he was a genius? How did the paper uh, uh, know he was sleeping a few hours a night? Because well, he told him. No other proof. Also in 1990, Keith, the future benevolent guru, allegedly rapes another kid, a kid uh, much younger than the other kids. 
as super geniuses are want to do. Uh, he hires a 12-year-old dog walker who was unnamed in the paper that broke the story, the Albany County Times Union. Keith appears to have hired her to groom her and get close to her, showering her with attention before he takes her virginity. He's fucking 30 years old. She's 12. This guy has followers dancing in support of him outside the prison where he's being held right now. So fun. Why do they support him still? Cognitive dissonance, backfire effect, doubling down. According to the Times Union, this young woman, this girl said she had sex with Keith uh, at least 60 times, including in the office for his members-only buying club, Consumers Byline, where her mom worked. That's how he met her. She later grew so uncomfortable with her relationship, she ran away from home, went to the police in 1993. Uh, There wasn't enough evidence, though, to charge him based on her confession, and she was too uncomfortable to wear a wire and get Keith to admit to it. So he gets away with it again. 1991. Keith meets Tony Natalie, an actual grown-ass woman who would become his girlfriend for several years. They met at a Holiday Inn near the Rochester, New York airport. In 91, Keith's multi-level company, Consumers Byline, rapidly expanding. He's coming to the Holiday Inn to pitch Natalie and her husband to become new members. Some cajoling from her then-husband, Natalie decides to hear Ranieri out despite being burned previously by a different MLM. She'd long been self-conscious about her own education, having dropped out of high school in the 10th grade. Uh, not knowing when she dropped out that she was dyslexic. Uh, When she heard Keith speak, she was convinced he was the real deal. He was a genius. He said so. And he would make her rich. He also said so. Natalie and her husband bought into Consumers Byline. They They went on to become top sellers in the Rochester area, often traveled to Clifton Park, the Albany suburb where Ranieri lived, to visit Keith at the company headquarters. First time they visited, Ranieri noticed the smell of cigarettes on Natalie, she later said. He asked if she wanted to stop smoking. She told him, yeah, she did. He proceeded then to lead her to a quiet room and they talked about what made her nervous, about what made her anxious. He touched what he called her trigger points on her hands, telling her to touch them whenever she got the urge to smoke. When she returned, Natalie's husband asked what took them so long. Lost in conversation and in something of a meditative state, she thought it had been about 15 minutes. Nope, he told her it was more uh, than two hours. The dude hypnotized her. We'll talk about that later. Uh, Within a year, like literally hypnotized her, Uh, Within a year, Natalie and her son now move to Clifton Park after Ranieri secures her a job with the skincare company that Consumers Byline had partnered with. And then it wasn't long before Natalie's marriage ended and she took up with Keith. Man, how fucking pissed was her husband? He talked her into joining Keith's MLM and then this dude seduces her away from him. How much does this guy want to kill Keith? I am continually surprised that more cult leaders are not murdered by the family members of their followers. I truly am. Uh, Also, this little example shows how smooth Keith could be. How did he steal Natalie away? Well, there's some hypnosis stuff we'll get into later, but also he was just, he was a really good listener. In some interviews I watched with former members, they talked about how Keith could make you feel like you were the only person on earth, right? They talked about how he has this gift, this ability to listen so intensely, to focus on you so intensely. How could he make it seem like your problems were the only problems that mattered in moments when he focused on you? He, he made you think that he knew how to fix you. I, I've heard followers of Jim Jones, David Koresh, other cult leaders talk about uh, them in similar ways. He was able to do that because these guys know how to prey on people. They know who to prey on. They know what people need. Attention. Just basic need to feel cared about attention. They know how important that is to us. How many of us desperately want someone to really, really listen, to really focus on us, to have someone who really truly seems to care about our struggles with the human condition? All of us want some form of that. And a lot of us sadly don't get it from our current friends or partners or families. And these cult leaders, they fucking know that. It's like if we were all plants, they know how to recognize which one of us uh, or which of us are the driest, which of us need the most water. And then they just give us that water. And it feels so good. We feel just, you know, uh, 
so loved and understood when really we're just being manipulated. Fucking predators, man, narcissistic predators who have no problem manipulating others to put them under their control. 1993, the New York Attorney General files a lawsuit against Consumers Byline, accusing it of being a pyramid scheme, because it is. Ranieri claims that his company does not require its distributors to pay for the opportunity to sell memberships or earn commissions on the sales of the people recruited below them. People who wanted to could pay separately for the membership in the buying club, he said. The New York Attorney General, however, is like, nah, fuck that. The Attorney General feels that the difference between people who pay for membership and those who don't is fictional. The state's complaint said, the emphasis in CBI is clearly not on the sale of a product, but on recruiting new organizational rows to boost membership. Indeed, the only product in CBI is the membership. CBI is a classic pyramid scheme. When served with this lawsuit, Ranieri attempts to, or excuse me, admits to no wrongdoing, settles with the state for $40,000. He makes changes, tries to walk his company back from being a pyramid scheme to a legal MLM. And then he closes shop in 1997 when he can't do that. And he closes under a mountain of lawsuits. And then he starts another MLM in 97, the National Health Network, which sold vitamins and never really got off the ground. Uh, It only lasted two years before collapsing in 99. But opening this company, which did include a brick and mortar store, a health store, did lead him to meeting his second in command. More on that person in just a second. Also in 97, Tony, Natalie, and Keith's relationship begins to break down. Natalie would later say in interviews, what he kind of does is he elicits as much information as he can, almost as a friend you're sharing with. Then he takes those things and he manipulates you with them. Far more troubling, Natalie alleges that Ranieri raped her numerous times during their relationship. She said that he began to force himself on her against her will, sometimes while her son slept in the next room due to such a sexual deviant, molesting kids, raping adults. In a 2011 statement to the police, Natalie wrote, prior to leaving him, I was raped repeatedly by Ranieri, each time with him telling me it was harder on him than it was on me and that we needed to be together so I could share in his energy. Gross. Natalie sent her son to live with his father in 98, left Keith in 99. A little over a year before Natalie left in late 97, Ranieri meets a psychiatric nurse, Nancy Salzman, at the health food store he owned in Clifton, the one he tried to launch that MLM off of. Nancy will become his second in command. These two wackadoodles really hit it off. Keith told her he was an enlightened being, a world-class genius who wanted to share his gift of enlightenment with humanity. And Nancy buys this bullshit because she is also crazy. Nancy's a con artist. When she met Keith, she was super into hypnosis and neuro-linguistic programming, a method of changing another person's thoughts through communication techniques, awesome cult recruiting tool. She was a trained hypnotist. Cult expert Steve Hassan thinks she taught Keith, who was very interested in hypnosis at the time, how to literally hypnotize people into following him. In an interview with Vice, Hassan said, I've talked to more than a few ex-members now who talked about their first meetings with Keith. They have no memory of what happened. These are two or four hour meetings. Remember that meeting earlier with the smoking thing. As an expert who studied NLP, I think that's indicative of them being put into a hypnotic trance state and specifically giving a suggestion that they'll have no recollection of later when it's, you know, uh, what was said or done. How fucking scary being hypnotized into joining a cult, being brainwashed that way into buying this bullshit. Dude was a fucking evil wizard. 1998, Salzman incorporates the group that will become Nexium in Delaware for tax purposes while headquartering it in upstate New York. Salzman wrote in a brochure, there is probably no discovery since writing as important for humankind as Mr. Ranieri's technology. 
high praise. And what technology is he talking about? Nothing. He's, he didn't have any tech. He just had ideas that he called tech. Uh, they started the organization as a self-improvement, multi-level marketing company that offered executive success programs or ESPs, corporate leadership coaching. And they were real successful. Roughly 16,000 people will enroll in these personal development classes and workshops to overcome psychological and emotional barriers. Uh, Ranieri didn't just promise to unlock clients' greater potential. He claimed that his methods could do shit like cure ailments like Tourette's syndrome, uh, even help kids speak up to 13 languages. Uh, let's look at uh, Nexium's insane methods and philosophy. This ESP. Ranieri based Nexium around a series of techniques or technology, as he called it, that he believed could heal individuals and transform the world. At least that's what he said. The courses taught that everyone was, was responsible for their own reactions to the outside world and with enough integrations, you could reach unification in which you'd be happier, better, more meaningful. Uh, Nexium featured a 12-point mission statement which participants recited, pledging to purge themselves of all parasite and envy-based habits, to enroll others in such courses, and to ethically control as much of the money, wealth, and resources of the world as possible within my success plan. Classic MLM bullshit. In order for this to work for you, you got to get others to join. You can't keep my incredible technology to yourself. The most important technology the world has seen since the invention of writing, that would be too selfish. Don't be selfish. Get others to pay thousands and thousands of dollars for me to hypnotize them with my bullshit. You know, get rich, help the world by getting so rich and then give me, you know, a lot of those riches. Uh, Nexium conducted intensive classes for 12 hours a day for 16 days with new members. More classic cult shit. Wear people down. Get them tired. The more tired they are, the greater the odds. They'll eventually just let go of their critical thinking and just buy whatever you're selling. Uh, One-sided price for these workshops was $7,500. Classes were divided into modules. In one module, relationship sourcing, students were instructed to explore the benefits they would receive in the event of a partner's death. That's not shady at all. Hey, uh, find out how much money you'll get if your partner dies so you can give it to us and take more modules. Another module, Dracula and his ghouls, fun name, uh, reportedly discussed psychopaths and their followers. How, uh, how ironic. Uh, other module titles included Best People, Perfect World and The Heroic Struggle. Nexium also offered the Rainbow Cultural Garden, an attempt to raise super kids by immersing them in a different language each day of the week from infancy. Children spent most of their time away from their parents in this module, thus making them ripe for cult indoctrination. And not, you know, terrifying at all that this is, uh, you know, a, a module run by a fucking pedophile. Another group, JNS, claimed to be about the empowerment of women with multi-day training courses using core Nexium materials. But we'll see later, it was a breeding ground for a secret sex cult. Old Pervy Keith was cooking up in the background. Photographs of Ranieri and Nancy Salzman were displayed during all of these seminars, which always concluded with participants having to show gratitude to the two leaders. Cult, cult, cult. This gratitude portion, so critical to turning from an MLM into a cult. Fine line between demanding gratitude and encouraging worship. And these courses were tiered, kind of like in Scientology. You know how you can pay to level up. Get, you could buy more secret, secret and sacred knowledge. With Nexium, you paid thousands to take a series of initial courses, and then you were offered the opportunity to pay far more uh, for advanced classes, classes taught by people with no teaching accreditation. As members leveled up, they earned new fun sashes. That's super fun. You, you paid millions to get a sash. Uh, each sash denoted a different enlightenment status. And Nexium classes rank was signified by the wearing of these colored sashes, very similar to how uh, colored belts are used in various martial arts classes. You want to be a six-degree spiritual enlightened black belt? 
Cool, just get down on your knees and suck Keith's dick. I mean, <laughs> pay thousands to take his classes and suck his dick. Uh, or if, if you're lady, if you're lady, and preferably no older than 15. Uh, each color in the hierarchy, not only a higher state of self-awareness, but also reflected a member's ability to recruit more members. The process for moving up in rank uh, uh, was up to the leader, Keith, you know, Rainier, who wore a white sash, always claimed to be uh, a student, a, for, a, a forever student, the humble master. Uh, generally involved taking more classes, pay more money, and of course, recruiting new members. White sashes were for students, those who had just joined. Anyone who paid to uh, join got a white sash. It's like a white belt and, you know, karate, whatever. Yellow sashes were for coaches, members who worked for free for the organization, teaching lower level classes, members who still paid to take classes. Seems ethical. Uh, orange sashes, is the, that's the next sash. Those were for proctors. These people were able to earn a small salary or commission for recruiting new members. However, you had to pour a lot of money into the organization to make back a small salary. Uh, green sashes were for senior proctors. Green sash, <laughs> this is insane to me. A green sash cost uh, around a million dollars. That's a lot of money for a green piece of fabric. I wonder if someone listening has a green Nexium sash folded up in a drawer somewhere. And I wonder how badly they want their million dollars back. Uh, blue sashes were for counselors and they cost $5 million. The fuck? These members could make a salary with a blue sash, but allegedly it was nothing compared to the money they just put in. Then there was, it goes even further. Purple sashes are for senior counselors. No word on how much this one costs, but allegedly only three Nexium members ever got a purple sash. Those poor, misled bastards. I'm, I'm guessing, what, 10 million bucks at least? For each of those, oh. Uh, black sashes uh, were reserved for pedophiles who figured out how to molest 12-year-old girls and not get caught. Keith would wear his black sash under his white sash, and then he would wrap a second black sash around his hard, evil, tiny dick. JK, but probably not about the tiny dick speculation. Uh, and then there, there was one more real sash. There was one gold sash, and that was reserved for the prefect. And the prefect was co-founder Nancy, evil wizard hypnotist Salzman. This rigid hierarchy pushed members to revere those with a higher level of sash to whom they were encouraged to pay tribute in words and deeds to worship, worship the sashes, worship the good God, Amway. I mean, Nexium. Uh, along with all their sashes and classes, Nexium also had a batshit personal dictionary. For example, a Luciferian was Nexium's preferred term for a type of sociopath, one with severe behavioral problems that are masked by good psychological adjustment who as described in a patent, a pending patent, typically experiences pleasure or gratification in situations where normal people would be repulsed or disturbed. I love that Keith tried to patent the use of the word Luciferian. Should I try and patent uh, Lucifina? Hey, Lucifina, great goddess of the suck. Uh, did you know, by the way, that if you pay me $5 million, I'll give you a fucking sash and I'll, and I'll conjure up the real Lucifina and she'll sleep with you and bestow divine sexual conquest powers unto you that will make you able to seduce anyone at any time. Then you can use your newfound sexual power energy to manipulate those around you into gaining basically anything your heart desires. And Lucifina will even change gender. She's gender fluid to appeal to whatever your sexual preference is. She could be a man. She could be a woman. Uh, if you don't believe me, well, just give me that $5 million and I'll disappear and go live on a beach somewhere. I mean, prove it. Uh, one former Nexium member, speaking on a condition of anonymity, learned about such a person, a Luciferian, in a course called The Fall, as in the fall Lucifer took in Milton's Paradise Lost. She said they were meant to understand that people who left Nexium were Luciferians, lost people, for whom bad feels good and good feels bad. So basically, uh, Keith and Nance just stole a page out of Scientology's playbook here. A Luciferian is just the equivalent of a Scientology suppressive person. 
Uh, in the Nexium program, which Ranieri has claimed is copyrighted and also tried to patent, uh, Ranieri describes some people as parasites, a term usage-wise he borrowed from Ayn Rand. All parasitic strategies lower self-esteem and therefore destroy value, Ranieri said in his patent application. It is our intent to rid the world of those things that destroy value. We can do this by modeling effort strategies with our own behavior and helping others learn to use them. This is spreading the mission. <laughs> this piece of shit. Uh, Ranieri also borrowed the term suppressive from Scientology, just gave it a different meaning. It referred to in Nexium those who impeded progress up the precious sash ladder. Stop trying to stop trying to stop me from sashing up, you suppressive. Uh, he also came up with cool nicknames for himself and Nancy. Uh, Ranieri was called Vanguard because he was the leader of the philosophical movement. Salzman, his first student, was Prefect. Mm, Vanguard. I have to admit, Vanguard, that nickname sounds more legit and impressive than any of my nicknames, like Suckmaster or uh, Bojangles Ballwasher. Okay. Keith's bogus technology also played a huge role in convincing new members that they were doing the right thing by joining Nexium. Keith was always talking a lot about his technology and his patents. This patent shit's so weird to me. He never invented anything. He submitted uh, patents all the time, but he never actually made anything. He submitted a, a patent for uh, some kind of Find My iPhone type device that no one bought. He submitted a patent for a sleep guidance system that was never made. No one gave a shit about. He submitted so many patents because it made him look cool, like a genius, right? Genius is patent shit. To quote Vanity Fair, Keith Ranieri exploited a common misconception about a tedious bureaucratic process to spread the gospel of his genius. And by this, they mean you don't have to be a genius to submit a patent for anything. You just have to fill out paperwork. Uh, rational inquiry, the behavioral therapy at the center of Nexium's public-facing work, almost always described as patent-pending technology in company literature. Uh, Ranieri's bio says that he has 147 international patents, including 47 in the U.S., in a variety of technical fields. This claim is very debatable. 2017 Vanity Fair investigation did find about 40 U.S. patent applications he'd filed. One former member said the patents were always a conversational piece amongst members. They were touted all the time as not just what he's working on, but why he is great, why he is so amazing. He's so humanitarian. He's building all these things to help the world. Uh, patent pending was a phrase used by those in Nexium's highest ranks all the time. A uh, former follower recalled that it was placed at the bottom of many of the ESP curriculum sheets. The anonymous former member explained, we took it to mean that patent is in effect, that it has been proven. This is his invention, you know? But that's not what patent pending means. The phrase simply means that a patent is in the process of review and anyone with any kind of know-how of patent filing can just file an application and have something that's patent pending. And a lot of his pending patents were fucking nonsense. Uh, one example, the method apparatus for improving performance is apparently a way of increasing performance on a treadmill by increasing speed over time. Uh, layman might recognize this approach as exercise. Dude tried to patent walking on a treadmill. I should submit a patent for method apparatus for improving performance through stationary respite, a.k.a. sleep. Uh, sometimes the delusional Ranieri thought he really did invent something and he would try to make money going after companies who use technology he claimed to have patented. <laughs> this jackass, he went big. He went after Microsoft and AT&T with the claim that he invented some type of teleconferencing tech and he didn't. He lost in 2015 when he couldn't prove he owned the patent. Uh, he couldn't prove it because he's a delusional maniac. It's all smoke and mirrors. Uh, his many patents were always a big talking point at Vanguard Week, V-Week, Nexium's week-long celebration of Keith's birthday. Mm -hmm. Before this dude's cult fell apart, this motherfucker was making his followers celebrate his birthday for an entire week, sometimes over a week. 
Now, this event began as a single day to honor the birthday of Ranieri, and it eventually expanded to 11 days. Members of Nexium would come from all across the country, Canada and Europe, to worship their idiot king. Hail the good god Amway, maker of quality, multi-purpose, and affordable laundry detergent. Uh, key celebration was held on various campgrounds and resorts, sometimes on the West Coast, sometimes near Albany. Attendees would pay uh, up to $3,500 to stay at a resort and attend V-Week. According to one former member, and this is on top of all the money they're spending on classes, according to one former member, uh, there was always some sort of entertainment or uh, some different kind of tribute to Keith from the different centers. There would be performances of singers directed to Keith. It was all kind of centered around Keith, uh, an idea of the tribute to Keith, celebrating Keith's work. Dude. Uh, during one V-Week, one member testified an attorney stood on stage with Ranieri who held large plaques engraved with five to six patents <laughs> that Ranieri had received. All this fucking crazy patent talk. Uh, V-Week included areas of interest called objectives for members to work on, like singing, dancing, drumming. Uh, it was kind of like a summer camp for adults. And it would feature, you know, Ranieri on stage, you know, uh, talking about thanks for, I don't know, worshiping me, I guess. October 2003. In a Forbes piece on Nexium, Edgar Bronfman Sr., a Canadian-American billionaire businessman, tells reporters that he believes Nexium is a cult. This seems to be the first time anyone had done this publicly. Bronfman's daughters, Sarah and Claire, were in the group, and Claire had already given Keith a $2 million loan that he would never pay back to help fund it. This is the first widely reported instance of someone again in the media labeling Nexium as a cult. Michael Friedman, the author of the Forbes piece, wrote that Keith's followers described him as, quote, one of the smartest and most ethical people alive. A pedophile, a lying pedophile. The Forbes piece goes on to say, they describe him as a soft-spoken, humble genius who can diagnose societal ills with remarkable clarity. They say his teaching as, teachings as an inspirational executive coach can empower some of the most successful people in the world to attain ever higher levels of status and money. Why his program can even cure ailments like diabetes and scoliosis. Oh boy, the dude who never went to medical school curing scoliosis now. He probably submitted some kind of uh, nonsensical spine straightening patent. Just submitted some series of pictures of someone laying on some table that looked like a medieval rack type contraption, pulling their feet and hands at the same time in opposite directions until pop, that spine is straight, baby. Uh, by this time, Keith is amassing quite the following, including celebrities, prompted by a word of mouth network. They include Sheila Johnson, co-founder of BET, Antonia C. Novello, former U.S. Surgeon General, Stephen Cooper, acting chief executive of Enron. God damn it. Uh, Seagram Fortunes, Edgar Bronfman uh, Sr., who took a course and then bounced out and was like, no, this is a cult. But, you know, got his daughters. Anna Christina Fox, daughter of the Mexican president. Dude was straight hypnotizing all these motherfuckers. Intelligent people, successful people, ambitious people, just desperate to become more intelligent and successful, I guess. In 2005, Keith sunk his Nexium hooks in Sarah Edmondson. Let's see how uh, he did this as a you know more in-depth personal example of how this cult sucked in members. Sarah decides to attend a spirituality-themed film festival with her husband. Good place to recruit cult members, people open to new spiritual ideas. Sarah felt like her life was a standstill. As an actress, she was barely getting enough work to keep herself in a, in a basement apartment. She'd done some beer commercials, but felt the work was meaningless. Nothing like the artistic career she'd once imagined. At the film festival, she meets a man named Mark Vincenti, who'd made a movie called What the Bleep Do We Know? A movie that looks fucking terrible. Super wackadoodle. 34% approval on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> Just to show what kind of films are being played at this festival. Peter Howell from the Toronto Star gave it the following review. 
The film with the year's most unfortunate title also happens to be a candidate for the year's worst film. Lou Luminick from the New York Post, more succinct, saying, two hours of new age hooey. Jack Matthews from the New York Daily News gave my favorite review saying, quantum bull bleep would be a more apt title for the conclusions that this movie draws. Wackadoodle nonsense. Uh, the movie describes itself as a film that takes viewers on a journey to unlock the secrets of life. How very ambitious. Here's a snippet uh, from this pile of shits uh, movie trailer. The real trick to life is not to be in the know, but be in the mystery. Ponder that for a while. Yeah, ponder that for a while, motherfucker. Ponder that statement that sounds intelligent but means nothing. Pretentious assholes. Uh, something the kind of shit someone says when they're three days into their first philosophy class and they're desperate to sound deep. Sarah, of course, loves this terrible movie, tells Mark so. He replies that if she liked the movie, she might like a 16-day empowerment program he recently took. Here we go! Cult, cult, cult. Uh, a group of people, including Mark, Sarah, and Sarah's husband, go uh, out for dinner after the film festival. I'm guessing have an incredibly punchable conversation that would make me want to take my salad fork and jam it into either one of their mouths or one of my ears. Sarah was coughing badly at this dinner, trying to hide a cold she'd had for weeks. Between hacking fits, Vincente took her aside and asked her a bizarre question that she'd never heard before. He said, what would you lose if you stopped coughing? <laughs> As in, what would be the downside if you weren't sick? This is the kind of counterintuitive bullshit questions people would uh, ask in Nexium courses to spark uh, quote-unquote epiphanies. And it prompted a burst of self-reflection in Sarah. She realized her coughs were an attempt to get her husband's attention. She had subconsciously believed that sickness would earn the care and love she so craved. I remember thinking, wow, whatever Mark from What the Bleep is up to, I want to know that too, Edmondson told a CBC interviewer. Sounds like Mark got really lucky here. I feel like the first 99 times you probably asked that question to other people, uh, they said, or at least thought stuff like, what are you talking about, asshole? I have a fucking cold. That's why I have a cough. Uh, and Sarah did have a cold. That's what's so crazy. She just let him trick her into thinking it was some other bullshit. Just somebody hearing what they want to hear. Sarah decides to take the intensive course, but is skeptical at first. Her parents were therapists, so she thought uh, there was nothing that these people could teach her about her emotions that she didn't already know. She found the group to be strange initially, because it was. At the end of the meeting, they bowed and said, thank you, Vanguard. Uh, she thought that was strange, but the facilitators explained that everyone has titles. Doctors have titles. Sensei has a title. Why can't Keith have a title? Right? He's the vanguard, and he's earned this title. It means he's a leader of a philosophical movement. And how did he earn it? Through the triple P method of guruship, philosophy, patents, pedophilia. Boom, boom, boom. Uh, Sarah also noticed that uh, people wore sashes. She figured that, you know what, whatever, people in martial arts wear sashes. You know, everything she had an issue with was explained away. She was still a little, little weirded out at the first day. Uh, she Googled the company, called Mark, said, what did you get me into? Then Mark said, don't think, what did you get me into, think, what did you get me out to? Ponder that for a while. Then he hung up, adjusted his man bun, transitioned into a new yoga pose, and then mumbled to the air around himself, I'm the wisest of them all. No, he didn't do that stuff. Feels like kind of douchey shit he do though. Uh, he actually said, anyone can write anything about anyone online. Of course, there are smear campaigns and haters and stuff like that. Classic defense. Anyone can use uh, to defend anything. Sarah decides to go back. On the third day, she has some profound realizations, what the executive success program called integrations. Sarah would later write that by the end of the fifth day, I had more clarity. I was making better decisions. I understood people better. I thought this was the key to success and happiness. But there was also this nugget they left you with. There was this problem with you you had to resolve. 
And of course, to fix that problem, that required more trainings. <laughs> there's a momentum to being committed to a group that you think is good. And there's a certain amount of cognitive distance to make your choice a good choice. When you spend $3,000 on a five-day training, you want it to be good. You want it to be a good choice. Yeah, something I got out of it, or I got something out of it. Yeah, it was amazing, really good. Same thing, a psychological phenomenon. You stick with it. And I think there was a part of me wanting to be right that it was good. Yeah, when you spend you know $3,000 on five-day training, yeah, you want to make it good. Of course you do. No one wants to feel like they threw away that money, right? Doubling down. So crazy. I've watched recent interviews with Sarah and she seems nice, but she does not seem like someone who has their shit together now. She spent all that money and she would go to these classes for years and she still seems uh, like someone very unsure of how life works on a basic level. Classes didn't teach her shit. Probably just made her more insecure. Uh, from 2005 to 2009, Sarah travels back and forth between New York and Seattle where there's a Nexium Center to take all kinds of lessons, spends all her money on these fucking lessons Goes into debt. Every three months or so, the center takes a, does a five-day training program where people fly uh, from New York to teach the training. Sarah ends up taking on this new role managing five-day programs after paying for a bunch of them. By her own admission, she was good at it, uh, good at bringing people in. Uh, she was working for free, also paying for other classes, feeling like she's getting a deal. She would eventually make some money, but probably not as much as she spent. Sarah noticed that Nexium was much more than classes. It was a community. People who were in Nexium had friends outside, but increasingly found themselves getting closer and closer only to people inside the group, obsessed with discussing Nexium techniques. Cult, cult, cult. Having a dinner party with Nexium friends meant constantly dissecting your fears and insecurities. Sounds annoying. Somebody said they didn't like sharing the food on their plate. For example, other group members would chime in with probing questions in an effort to overcome the block. What would you lose if you stopped this behavior? Is refusing to share holding you back? Dear God, I would have never lasted a day with these annoying lunatics. Hangers holding me back, you greedy dickweeds. If you wanted some sketty meatballs, you should have ordered some of your shit yourself. Get the fuck away from my plate. Uh, in 2006, Ranieri takes his cold a step further, creates JNS, a group focused on female members. Some of the teachings initially seemed reasonable enough. In the beginning of the course titled Raw, Men and women were encouraged to talk about their gender's genuine experience of life and sex and how the other sex often made them feel repressed, denigrated, and ashamed. By voicing these feelings, which can be taboo to speak out loud, men supposedly developed compassion for women and vice versa. Janus was priced at $5,000 for each eight-day workshop, of which there were 11, a chill 55K to become a Janus fucking Jedi. What a deal! Thank you, Lord Amway! Great God of quality, reasonably priced cookware. As the workshops progressed, Ranieri told followers that they must accept that women and men are wired differently. Men are repressed and do not enjoy the same rich experience of existence as women, but they have an understanding of right and wrong. Women can be disloyal, have tantrums, and get away with whatever they prefer. Huh. Ranieri then introduced a theory about ancient men that he called the primitive hypothesis, emphasizing that men are naturally promiscuous and there's nothing you can do about it, and women are monogamous. And the grooming begins. I bet my life he was paying real close attention to which attractive women, you know, bumped on this, which didn't, starting to pick out his harem. Uh, for men only, Nexium offered us a club called the Society of Protectors. In this group, Ranieri introduced a concept called collateral or collateral collateralizing your word, which uh, members understood to be adding extra leverage to your conscience. If a man didn't uphold his word about running, for example, perhaps the whole group would be punished and have to forgo uh, the next morning's coffee. As we'll see later, Collateral uh, took a different approach for women. In 2006, actress Allison Mack attends her first Nexium meeting. She's going to become a main figure in all of the ensuing insanity. 
Born July 29th, 1982 in West Germany, Mac lived the first two years of her life in Germany before her family moved to California. Her first acting job as a little toddler uh, was for a German chocolate company in a series of print ads and commercials. She went on to appear in dozens of television movies and shows, including the direct-to-video, Honey, We Shrunk Ourselves. Her childhood manager, Diane Harden, would later say she was just this great kid who seemed happy, mature for her age, and very responsible. But as she moved into her teens, she was poised but lacked sophistication, needing help with her makeup and style, recalled her former agent, Judy Savage. Also had a touch of naivete, said a former friend. The only thing I can think of the only thing I can think of is she so badly wanted to connect to something that she didn't see the rational side of things. The person I knew way back when was very curious about the world and relationships. I think she was just constantly searching for something that was missing in her life, her friend said. Mac was 18 when she was cast as Clark Kent's sidekick, Chloe Sullivan on Smallville, an addictive TV series about a young Superman, and it ran for 10 seasons. On Smallville, Chloe was the clever but grating best friend next to the ethereal dream girl, Lena Lang played by Kristen Kruk. Fans were cruel when contrasting the two young women's looks, and it was not lost on Mac, who was sensitive to the criticism. After high school, Mrs. or Ms. Mac uh, moved from her family's home in Los Alam Alamitos, California, to North Hollywood, had a group of industry friends, including her co-star, Kristen Kruk, and Kruk brought Mac to her first meeting of Janus, that women's group under the umbrella of Nexium. The weekend seminar was held in a Vancouver hotel. One Saturday morning in late 2006, several dozen people filed into an unremarkable hotel conference room for the two-day introduction to Janus. Max seemed to bask in the attention from co-founder Nancy Salzman. Uh, Salzman, uh, Mrs. Salzman was teaching a workshop speaking about how men are genetically polyamorous, said Susan Dones, owner of Anexium Center, who was there that day, or I guess former owner. By the end of the seminar, Allison had grown close to Ms. Salzman and her daughter, Lauren. Uh, she was ex, she was excited. Sorry. It was, uh, Mrs. When one, I, that was a miss. Uh, I wrote it wrong. My notes. She is miss. Not that that, not you guys are like, wait a minute. She misses her miss. I need to know. <laughs> uh, she's miss. And by the end of the seminar, Allison had grown close to Miss Salzman and her daughter, Lauren. She was excited when Sarah Bronfman, heir to the Singer, Seagram's liquor fortune, offered her a ride on her private jet to meet Keith Ranieri back in Albany. By the end of the weekend, Mac had a new best friend, Lauren Salzman, and the prospect of meeting with the guru who taught everyone at the seminar. She said yes to Albany, and that decision led to other decisions that have her now home on bond awaiting a judge to sentence her to probably 30 to 40 years in prison. After that weekend, Mac returned home to her boyfriend, Chad Krochek, uh, who would immediately tell her that she was thrilled, or who, she, who could immediately tell, excuse me, that she was thrilled about something. Krochek and uh, Mac had been living together for about three years, had seen a couple of their actor friends already get involved with Nexium. Mac told him she wanted to share this powerful experience with him. And even though Krochek was a little uncomfortable, he agreed to go to Albany to meet with the uh, Nexium inner circle. That was the part that scared me the most, Krochek later said of his girlfriend's sudden shift in perspective. Before we had conversations about it, and we both thought it seemed kind of weird and creepy. I don't necessarily know if she thought it was creepy, but we agreed it seemed messed up. Now Mac was 110% on board, which he still had reservations. Krochek wondered to himself, if the tools were really so powerful and the leaders were such committed humanitarians, why weren't they giving it away for free? Exactly, because they were running a sex cult. Uh, Mac was invited into Nexium's inner circle very quickly. Krochek tagged along in the beginning, but soon realized he didn't have the money to go further with his coursework. For a while, Mac paid for his courses. He tried to pay her back. Uh, she eventually spent between twenty dollars and $30,000 on his courses. Yeah. Uh, December 1st, 2007, Mac hosts Acapella Innovations in Albany. 
She'd then judge an acapella innovation competition that took place from April 4th to April 6th, 2008. Nexium attempts to attract college-age recruits with acapella innovations, a festival for college acapella groups. I'm guessing Keith was using this as a way to scope out some young potential future sex slaves. In 2009, Mark pondered that for a while. Vincente and Sarah Edmondson opened a Nexium Center in Vancouver, Canada. Also in 2009, Barbara Boucher, financial planner, confronts Keith about his secret sexual relationships with both clients and board members, as well as other improper business practices. Barbara had been Keith's girlfriend until about 10 months before the confrontation. According to Barbara, who we met earlier when talking about Keith's dad, uh, Keith pursued her from day one, and Nancy and his inner circle, continually saying Keith's praises, tried to encourage Barbara to date him. Six months after they met in 98, they did finally start a relationship. Then about a year after the relationship began, Barbara began to suspect that Keith was seeing multiple women, at least three of them. She found out later he was seeing at least nine other women while she was dating him before she left Nexium. When Keith would disappear for days at a time and Barbara openly wondered where he'd gone, uh, first Ranieri and then high-ranking Nexium women pointed to her abandonment issues as the daughter of an alcoholic father as the root of her suspicions. Her issues were the problem, not Ranieri. Perhaps he was absent because he was trying to teach her a great and wonderful lesson about one's expectations of another being. Perhaps he was having other relationships for her benefit. Nice. Baby, if you want to look at it like I'm fucking around on you and betraying your trust and possibly giving you some STDs, that's on you. That's your shit, right? That's your perspective. From my perspective, I'm taking my dick and I'm using it to teach you to be more forgiving of others. Every time I put my lesson cock inside another teachable moment, puss, you should be thanking me. Thank you, Keith, by helping me evolve by fucking other women. Oh, benevolent leader. Now bow down before the good God Amway, omnipotent God of environmentally friendly dish soap and knockoff energy drinks. Uh, Barbara ended the relationship a year before she left Nexium. Says that Keith gave her the silent treatment, told anyone who asked that Barbara had committed an ethical breach that was so bad, couldn't talk to her ever again. Totally. How dare she try and take his uh, philandering and use it against him? After Barbara confronts him, eight other women leave with her, which effectively closes down multiple training centers, including the one in Seattle. Now, instead of Vancouverites commuting south of the border for coursework like they did in the early 2000s, American clients start coming to Edmondson's thriving new center. Sarah's benefiting now. Uh, by the time Barbara left, she had given Keith $1.6 million of her savings. So much money. Money she gave him as a loan. Right? This is pattern here. People fucking throw money at this guy. Uh, money Barbara gave Keith to cover some bad investments that the genius made using all the money he was getting from his bullshit courses. Eventually, Barbara asked to get the money back. Keith refused. He encouraged her to think of her loan as a humanitarian donation. She was upholding his great mission and to take it back would be incredibly selfish. And she never got that money back. She filed a lawsuit, but Keith was used to dragging those out in court. Human pain, a new class is offered at Nexium centers beginning in 2011. Uh, the curriculum is an eight-day level two training and starts with the concepts of collateral and penance. People are encouraged to put down collateral as weight to their word for their commitments. If you didn't complete your goals or something you said you were going to do, people were encouraged to sleep on the floor, take cold showers. For women, penance was all about calories. According to Sarah Edmondson, that woman who uh, uh, we've met earlier, she was put on a 300-calorie diet, 300 calories a day, uh, because of some breach she'd committed. She uh, was only eating frozen zucchini and tomato stew. And this calorie punishment had nothing to do with self-help and everything to do with Keith liking his women to be exceptionally thin. Uh, by this time, he's sleeping with God knows how many of his female followers. February of 2012. 
some cult experts publicly state that Nexium is for sure a cult now and not just some MLM bullshit. In a Times Union piece, some cult experts point out that the terms and rituals in Nexium are very cult-like. One cult expert even likens Ranieri to David Koresh of the Branch Davidians, claiming the leader directed one of the most extreme cults he'd ever studied. As far as Keith, uh, in 2015, Keith takes his cult even further, forms DOS, the secret group within a group that would lead to his downfall. DOS stood for Dominus Obsequious Sororium, a Latin phrase which roughly translates to Master of the Obedient Sisterhood. Uh, this group was designed so that women would recruit other women and give them assignments as their, quote, masters, all framed as an exercise in mentorship. What the group was really about was providing Keith with, it, with an endless supply of young women trained to do whatever they were told sexually. He now starts keeping a rotating group of around 15 women for sex, forcing them to eat highly restricted diets because he liked his women, again, to be exceptionally thin. Women are assigned periods of celibacy while they wait for their turn for Keith to fuck them. When it's not their turn, they're not even allowed to masturbate. According to a later FBI complaint, masters would give, quote, slaves assignments that either directly or implicitly require them to have sex with Ranieri, which they then did. Other assignments appeared designed to groom slaves sexually for Ranieri down the road. Shit's getting crazier. How is all this rationalized? How can they still think of him as a benevolent ethical leader? Keith convinces these women he's sexually healing them now by literally fucking them. That's how brainwashed they are. He's pushing them past sexual trauma and empowering them sexually by demanding they perform sexual acts they're not comfortable with. Women in interviews I watch wouldn't say what these acts were other than that they were exceptionally demeaning and degrading. But he's doing it for them. He's doing it to help them push past some issues. In 2017, Nexium continues to spiral downwards into further insanity. One member later recalls that when she is diagnosed with breast cancer, Nexium associates tell her that she has given herself breast cancer. Why? It's a desperate attempt to get her husband's attention. And then they do something even more gross. They tell her that instead of spending the money she has raised online for her breast cancer treatment, she should give Nexium that money and make the ethical decision to die. Cult, 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 give us your cancer money. Please, the good God, Amway, Lord of affordable anti-wrinkle cream and multi-action fluoride toothpaste. I know, by the way, that Nexium has nothing to do with Amway at this point. <laughs> just cracks me up to call their God Amway. Just to fucking rile up Amway people, even though they didn't even have a gun. Uh, also in 2017, Lauren Salzman travels to Vancouver to visit Sarah Edmondson, catch up and visit. Though the women had previously been very close, Lauren had been the maid of honor at Sarah's wedding, was Sarah's son's godmother. Lately, they drifted apart a bit. Sarah was hopeful that this visit was going to bring them back together. And it would, in a way she did not anticipate. Uh, after a few days on the trip, Lauren takes Sarah aside and tells her that she wants to invite her to something really amazing, like the most amazing something that's going to change Sarah's life. Lauren says it had changed her life already completely, but before she can tell Sarah about it, Sarah has to give her something. Sarah has to give Lauren something to prove she's not going to talk about it with anything with anybody else. Like what, Sarah asked. Lauren said it could be anything. Nude photo, uh, family secret, nude photo, uh, nude video, uh, anything that would keep Sarah from talking about it. When Sarah says this makes her uncomfortable, Lauren tells her that that's a good sign. She should feel uncomfortable right? Uncomfortable is good. Uh, it means that you're, you know, pushing into new territory. Giving Lauren a nude blackmail photo would obviously be a good thing. Wake up and smell the spread eagle crotch shots, Sarah. This is for your good. Sarah agrees. She writes down a list of bad things that she and members of her family have done. Lauren says, not enough. So she writes another list. She lies about things, makes up bad shit, you know, makes up stuff like her, her husband beating their kids, which wasn't even true, that he was unfaithful. That wasn't true. And then she gives Lauren some nude photos. 
<laughs> this shit is so crazy. Lauren then uh, tells Sora what the big secret is. It's an international women's group that doesn't have anything to do with executive success programs. Doesn't have to do with Nexium. Doesn't have anything to do with Keith. And this is, of course, all lies. This has everything to do with Keith. She says it's a worldwide group of women, a badass bitch camp, as she described it. Some women called the group The Vow. Others referred to it by the solemn name DOS, Dominus, you know, Dominus Obsequious Sororium. So it's DOS again. Lauren describes it as a sorority. The first step is a commitment to Lauren, a lifetime commitment. Sarah, as deep as she already is with all this bullshit, still finds this concerning, but she figures, well, she's already made a lifetime commitment to Lauren by being her best friend. What's so different about this? The second thing is a vow of obedience. Sarah would be the slave. Lauren would be the master. The concept, especially how it's worded, creeps Sarah out. But Lauren explains, it's just an exercise. Come on. Gosh dang. Come on. Stop being so weird. Just, just be my slave. Stop being weird about it. Masters would help slaves count calories to save them from the trap of emotional eating. Uh, masters would dictate an act of self-denial like cold showers or rousing yourself from bed at 4 a.m. Uh, slaves were told to do acts of care for masters, perhaps bringing them coffee. Slaves might be also commanded to abstain from orgasms for a period of time to help them heal their negative sexual patterns. Uh, such weird shit. Uh, she told her that each master was supposed to bring in slaves and then to become masters, those slaves would recruit more slaves of their own. An estimated 150 women would ultimately join uh, some of the slaves, call each other sisters, uh, and Sarah agreed to be Lauren's slave. And then in March of 2017, the infamous Nexium branding goes down. Sarah flies to Albany for this kind of fucking slave master ceremony. She told it's going to be a special initiation and it's going to have a tattoo element. And this worries Sarah. Should have. This is all insane. She doesn't have any tattoos, no piercings besides her earlobes. Uh, wasn't something she wanted on her body. When she tells Lauren, Lauren says that they need to work through Sarah's fears together. The tattoo's meaningful, says Lauren. It's just going to be mountains and water to symbolize inner strength. Laura then brings Sarah to her guest room, tells her to get naked and put on a blindfold, as one does for a tattoo. Uh, all my tattoos, every single one of them. I got, uh, I got naked, I got blindfolded, and then the tattoo artist shoved stuff in my butt as part of the tattoo process. That's how the ink cures. You have to have stuff shoved in your butt. <laughs> you get it? Come on. That's how you got yours. Uh, but no, so she goes to this thing. She's blindfolded. She gets naked. Sarah does this. She hears movement in the house. It's other slaves. Lauren has more slaves. They would all be gathering together for the first time. Sarah had actually been excited about this now. She thought it was going to be like a family reunion when she <laughs> talked about it later. This is, uh. she's brought to a living room. She has her blindfold taken off. Now she finds herself sitting there with four of the women, all of whom she knew from Nexium, all naked. All the women are shy, trying to cover themselves up. But Lauren tells them, get over it. Get over your body issues, your sisters. Your sisters being naked together. You know how that works. As with the rest of Nexium, anytime anyone has a concern, it's immediately pinned on their fears, right? It's, it's their, their issue. Dr. Daniel Roberts enters the room. Lauren uh, tells one of the women to get on the table. The women now take turns holding each other down as Dr. Roberts uses a cauterizing device to sear a two-inch symbol below each woman's hip, a procedure that took 20 to 30 minutes per person. It's really painful. Women are crying and shaking. At one point, they put on surgical masks because of the smell of burning flesh in the room. Each time a new woman gets on the table, Lauren instructs her, instructs her to say, Master, please brand me. It will be an honor. Sarah wants to run, but she can't think of uh, what to do. She just feels paralyzed. She's naked in a house in Albany. She didn't, uh, you know, contact anyone. Uh, and she can't talk, contact anyone to tell people about what she's already done, what she's given as collateral, the nude pictures, the video testimonials, trash talk in her family. She feels committed. She listens, watches two women receive brands, then gets on the table herself. Later, Sarah would realize the brand wasn't a mountain, wasn't a river. It was fucking Keith's initials. 
and put a KR on her hip. After realizing she's been branded to be Keith's sex slave, she finally leaves Nexium. Turning over control to Vancouver Center to other Nexium members, she urges Mark, Mr. Ponder, Vincente to leave with her, which he does. And the two spend the next several months cold calling other Nexium members and their families, urging them to sever ties with the organization. One of the people they contact is actress Catherine Oxenberg, mother of India Oxenberg, who joined Nexium when she was just 19 in 2011. Catherine had actually introduced her daughter, India, to the group, figuring it could help her daughter develop leadership skills. A few years later, at Ranieri's trial, an ex-Nexium member known as Nicole would testify that uh, Allison Mack forced India into a star starvation diet, allowing her to eat only 500 calories a day until she got down to 107 pounds. India also received a brand, became part of Keith's harem before she left the group in 2018. Okay, October 17th, 2017, the New York Times publishes a major expose about the organization and its branding ritual. Keith has finally pushed shit too far. Having these women literally branded, turns out that was the line that ends up bringing him down. Uh, Sarah Edmondson speaks out about her experience, about being in DOS, being branded. She poses for a picture for uh, you know the New York Times where she shows the brand on her pelvic bone. It shocks readers. Shortly after the New York Times article appears, Verneri bounces. He flees to Mexico where he spotted several times walking through a secured gate community in a suburb of Monterey. Uh, many of his rich Mexican donors live nearby. Rumors start to swirl about an FBI investigation to find him. Ranieri disappears. March 26, 2018, the FBI does find Ranieri. Uh, they find him in Mexico, charge him with sex trafficking and forced labor crimes. Finding Ranieri was very difficult because he had begun to use end-to-end -end encrypted emails. He had stopped using his phone. He wasn't using his own money down in Mexico. Federal authorities said that Ranieri did not hold bank accounts in his name, had no driver's license. Uh, for more than a year, he had used a credit card account associated with a dead lover to make purchases. Prosecutors wrote, in the past year and a half, the defendant and the mother of his child have accessed hundreds of thousands of dollars from a bank account in the same dead lover's name, which contains over $8 million. That account belonged to Pamela Ann Kafritz, a Nexium member who died in November of 2016. Ranieri taken into custody after Mexican immigration Officials help FBI agents track him to a luxury $10,000 a week villa near Puerto Vallarta, Mexico, where he was staying with several of his sex slaves. I guess, uh, yeah. Just one day after the FBI caught Ranieri, news outlets start to speculate about what other people are involved in Nexium's suspected criminal activities. Other arrests go down. In April 2018, the New York State Licensing Board charges Brandon Porter, an Albany-based doctor, for moral unfitness to practice medicine, negligence, gross incompetence, and more for his role in the cult. Also that April, Smallville actress Allison Mack is arrested, charged with sex trafficking, forced labor. In a Brooklyn court, assistant U.S. attorney Mora, or My, Mora, yeah, Mora uh, Penza says, Ms. Mack was one of the top members of a highly organized scheme which was designed to provide sex to Ranieri. Under the guise of female empowerment, she starved women until they fit her co-defendant's sexual feminine ideal. On May 30th, 2018, Mac claims she came up with the infamous branding ritual. In a Times interview, she explains the inner workings of DOS. In order to join the alleged sla uh, slave master sorority, she says members were ordered to adhere to low-calorie diets, subject themselves to humiliation, and undergo the branding ritual. On July 24th, Claire Bronfman, Nancy Salzman, Lauren Salzman, and Kathy Russell are arrested and charged with racketeering uh, for their alleged involvement in Nexium. Prosecutors allege that the four defendants recruited and groomed sexual partners for Ranieri and used harassment, coercion, and abusive litigation to intimidate and attack perceived enemies and critics. 
On March 13th, 2019, Nancy Salzman pleads guilty, confessing that she has tracked and monitored women within Nexium and done other shady shit. She becomes the first person to take a guilty plea associated with Nexium, saying in court that she closely monitored suspected moles within the cult and ordered people to destroy videotapes that documented some of Ranieri's shadier teachings. She said, I want you to know I am pleading guilty because I am in fact guilty. She said through sobs, I accept that some of the things I did were not just wrong, but criminal. On March 14, 2019, Ranieri is hit with additional child pornography charges. Federal prosecutors say that Ranieri had sex with a 15-year-old girl who later became his first, quote, sex slave, and then he documented the encounter. He also is accused of possessing child pornography going back to 2000, uh, 2005. Damn. During Ranieri's trial, it will come out that he had more than 100 slaves and that they were as young as 15. And in messages shared with one young slave, he requested the follower, find other virgins on Tinder, saying younger is fine. Younger as in younger than 15. This piece of shit. It was also uh, alleged that if his slaves didn't do as, as he asked, he would punish them by putting them in a cage, sometimes making them hit each other with leather straps. Why would he do that? Because it was what the good God Amway decreed, wise Lord of water purifiers and empowered drinking water. On April 2nd, Lauren Salzman confesses to helping enslave a woman for two years as she pleads guilty. When the woman did not complete a request, Salzman confessed that she threatened to deport her back to Mexico. On April 18th, Allison Mack pleads guilty to one count of racketeering, uh, conspiracy, and one count of racketeering. I have come to the conclusion that I must take full responsibility for my conduct, and that's why I'm pleading guilty today, Mack said in court. The next day, on April 19th, Claire Bronfman pleads guilty to conspiracy to conceal and harbor an illegal alien for financial gain, as well as fraudulent use of identification. June 19th, 2019, after nearly six-week trial, Ranieri is found guilty of seven charges, including sex trafficking, sex trafficking, conspiracy, racketeering, conspiracy to commit forced labor. Dozens of women testified at his trial about the abuses they suffered at his hands, and it began for all of them by taking courses with Nexium. One young woman, Daniela, originally from a small town in Mexico, testified that she was so inspired by Nexium, she decided to move to Albany for one year to be mentored by Ranieri. When there, Ranieri punished Daniela by forcing her to stay in a room for nearly two years, right? She's a lady who was put in a fucking cage basically for two years, unable to see anyone from her family. Daniela said she had a sexual relationship with Ranieri, as did her two sisters, and that they were forced to have abortions when they became pregnant. Nicole, an actor who became involved in the group after taking courses, testified that she was blindfolded, tied to a table, sexually assaulted by an unknown dude while Ranieri stood nearby and asked her invasive questions about her sex life. When the incident was over, she was told by Ranieri that she was brave and that nothing bad had happened. He claimed the exercise was helping her become sexually empowered. It's all about empowerment. Interesting way to rationalize rape. Jay, an actor and model, told the court that the reason she joined DOS was because it was described to her as a program where women pushed one another to be better. Jay testified that she had confided in other DOS members about her experience being abused as a child. She testified she was stunned when Mac instructed her to then seduce Ranieri, telling her it would heal her previous sexual abuse trauma. That's how you get over sexual abuse, by being sexually abused some more. January 2020, Nexium faces a lawsuit, a big one. Plaintiffs, some 80 individuals, allege that they've been lured in by false scientific claims before, before paying thousands, if not millions of dollars, becoming victims of a pyramid scheme. In painstaking detail, the lawsuit explained how people with college degrees and white-collar jobs got trapped up in Nexium. Membership in Nexium was by invitation only. Before the first class, recru recruits were required to fill out long questionnaires about their views on wealth, religion, children, 
Other topics. The goal, according to the lawsuit, was to pinpoint their insecurities and weed out skeptics. One former participant said that Nexium's recruiters looked for trust fund babies and Hollywood actors, and that many Nexium members had been survivors of sexual assault. Their fears and abuse confessions would be used against them if they tried to leave Nexium. How fucking evil. And speaking of lawsuits, I almost forgot about, uh, we do have one final sponsor. Time Suck is brought to you today by the law office of Chase, Kemper, and Kroll. Have you been branded by a fake genius? Has your mind been melted by never-ending patent talk? Have you paid thousands of dollars for months of useless psychobabble? Have you been tricked into bowing before the great god Amway? If your life has been negatively impacted by Keith's such a punchable face Ranieri, please call us today. Also, we're currently still investigating claims that his cult may have been infested with shrub sluts that did further damage to members destroying their relationships while Keith destroyed their minds. Keith may himself be some kind of male shrub slut. Shrub sluts. It's a goddamn epidemic. If your marriage counselor or divorce court attorney has not taken seriously your claims of either cult abuse or shrub sluttery, or both, get the money you deserve. Call the law office of Chase, Kroll, and Kemper by dialing toll-free 1-800-SHRUB-SLUT. The call is free. The advice is free. Call toll-free 1-800-SHRUBSLUT for an in-person consultation. Our office is located just east, not east, east, guys, <laughs> off I-95 between IHOP and Cash and Go. Look for the giant shrubs. Huh. That was a weird sponsor. Okay, let's get back to this timeline. July 2020, winding down. This cult is still alive, barely, but still alive. Uh, beginning in July 2020, just a few months ago, at least six Nexium loyalists were organizing dance protests outside the detention center that houses Ranieri as he awaits sentencing. Operating under the name We Are As You. No, you're not. Uh, dancers include Canadian actress Nikki Klein, uh, actress who played Kelly Henderson Tyrol on the Sci-Fi Channel television series Battlestar Galactica, uh, branding doctor Daniel Roberts. Nikki just reveal, revealed a few days ago that she was in a sexual relationship with Keith for a decade uh, Nikki also married to Allison Mack. Federal prosecutors have claimed that Mack and Klein were wed at the behest of Keith Ranieri. More sex slave shit. Uh, just days ago, just a couple days ago, October 18th, 56 Nexium members wrote letters to the judge that will be sentencing Keith soon, defending this pedophile. They're still in. He was originally supposed to be sentenced back in September of 2019, but defense motions delayed it, and then COVID delayed his sentencing further. His sentencing hearing, as I record this, is set for October 27th. Uh, set to begin at 10 a.m. He's being held at the Metropolitan Detention Center in Brooklyn, New York, and U.S. District Judge Nicholas Garofis will hand down his sentence, and he is expected to receive a life sentence. Nexium's website is no longer in operation, and as far as I can tell, none of its centers are currently open. Odds are, with his sentencing, the cult will be, for all intent and purposes, dead in the water. Co-founder Nance is awaiting a date for her sentencing, which was postponed due to the pandemic as well. She faces up to 20 years in prison. And with that being the latest info, let's head on out of today's Time Suck timeline. Good job, soldier. You made it back. Barely. All right, before we wrap up, let's talk about how Nexium relates to Scientology, because that's a big influence. Like good old L. Ron Hubbard, Ranieri based a lot of his claims on him being such a smart man before he introduced members to the more spiritual side of Nexium. 
Uh, the two men both heavily fabricated their backgrounds. I guess there really wasn't a huge spiritual side, but you know, it was it just, it just felt felt like it was moving in that direction. All their crazy talk. Uh, like most of Hubbard's exaggerated bullshit claims, youngest ever Eagle Scout, daredevil pilot, blood brother to the Blackfeet Native American tribe. Uh, Ranieri's claims were ludicrous, uh, easily disproven. Nicknames and worship. That's another, uh, you know, common denominator between the two. Ranieri insisted that followers call him Vanguard, such as Hubbard wanted his minions to call him Source. The sort of naming serves a very important purpose, purpose in cult indoctrination, causing believers to see the founder as more than human and infallible. Beware of people who force nicknames on you, <laughs> like Vanguard or Sir Suxalot or Prophet of Nimrod or Suckmaster. I'll show myself out. Uh, litigation. Ranieri used the same scorch earth litigation tactics opponents against opponents that Scientology has. One critic website suggests that Ranieri may have spent $50 million in legal fees over the last 20 years, most of it attacking detractors such as suing journalists who tried to expose his cult. Uh, tech and secrecy, Nexium, Scientology, both claim to use revolutionary technology that's not fucking technology that helps people work out their trauma, you know, live their best lives, like the auditing bullshit of Scientology is ludicrous. Uh, because they, they know their tech is ridiculous, they don't let the outside world see it and expose it for how fucking stupid it is. Uh, next in materials have been subject to extraordinary secrecy, just like Scientology's, before Scientology's teachings became widely available over the internet. Before we all knew, uh, it's a bunch of dumb shit about fictitious aliens. Uh, Nexium students signed extensive non-disclosure agreements. Members of the inner circle gave leadership collateral intended to be used to keep them from either leaving or sharing secret teachings. Uh, ethics. Ranieri followed the same playbook as Scientology and many other cults claiming that he and his fellow higher-ups were the most ethical people on earth. That's a common cult technique for engendering feelings of superiority amongst members. We're the best. We're the most ethical for redefining members' sense of morality to enable leaders to get members to engage in highly immoral, amoral activities following the leader's dictates over their own consciousnesses. Ay-yay-yay. So what does Nexium's collapse mean for the future of other cults like, uh, like Scientology? Some have argued that Nexium's collapse is a sign that Scientology is doomed to fail sooner or later, but sadly, uh, not necessarily true. Scientology is so much bigger, for one thing. Nexium claimed to have enrolled 16,000 people since 98 in its training classes, Investigators have estimated this number is probably less than 5% of the number of people who have actively pursued multiple training courses through Scientology. And as far as we know, Scientology's leader, David Miscavige, while he seems like a huge douchebag, uh, he at least is not fucking kids and branding a harem that we know of. Uh, one of the best ways for a cult leader to eventually incur a lot of backlash, as we've learned over and over again on past cult episodes, is to start fucking everybody. Uh, but there's still some hope. For the demise of Scientology, the more we expose these cults and denounce them, the greater the odds new recruits will think a little harder about joining. And what should you think about when approached by a member of a group or a person, you know, claiming to have all the spiritual answers you are looking for? Well, look out for signs of coercive and manipulative behavior. Do they claim to be able to improve your life practically overnight? Are their followers only devoted to their group instead of having a wide variety of interests? Do followers give a lot of money and time to the group, insisting they'll someday make it all back and more? Does leadership seem abusive? If so, stay the fuck away. Now let's wrap up. We went over a lot today. I hope it all made sense. It's a complicated uh, topic in some, some ways. I'm sure more info will come out going forward concerning Nexium and its shady practices. It's also fresh. I'm sure there will be other shady pyramid schemes and MLMs that will ruin more lives as time rolls forward as well. Maybe we'll suck them too. The lure of the get-rich-quick scheme. Always so appealing. Got to be careful with that. Don't get sucked in. 
Don't let cognitive dissonance and the backfire effect pull you in further and further and destroy you. Odds are no one's going to change your finances overnight. There's no magic get rich pill. I mean, sure, you could win the lottery, but overwhelming odds are against that. Uh, You can achieve personal empowerment and enlightenment, but you don't need to pay thousands of dollars for stupid woo-woo mindfuck courses to do that. Real meaningful change requires a lot of hard work, like going to a good licensed therapist, really working on your shit for a long time, going back to school, getting a better degree, uh, working a ton of hours to start a small and successful business to improve your financial lot. At least that's what I think, what I've thought for a long time. I've uh, hoped to get rich quick, you know, many times in my life, never worked out. Podcasting seems to be working out now, very thankful. Just took over 20 years after starting on the path that that led here. At my lowest points, I never jumped on the get rich quick uh, bandwagon. Not completely. Not because I'm some genius, because you know I'm not. You've listened to the show enough. I just watched too many others around me try that when I was younger, and I never saw it work out, right? Like, I'm lucky. My grandparents showed me a different way, another way, the right way. Grandma Betty and Papa Ward, they don't make meat sacks any finer than these two. Never have, never will. Papa Ward, working a job he hated as sawmill for over 20 years to provide for his family, grew up with nothing, beat by an alcoholic father, mom abandoned him, dad stole from him, and he doesn't complain about any of that shit. He worked construction, other labor jobs he also didn't like for around another 20 years when the sawmill shut down. Never made much in any given year ever. But he worked second jobs on the weekends, bought cheap land, slowly built rentals instead of watching TV or going to the bar. My grandma never left Little Riggins, Idaho, ever in her life, never went to college, uh, got a job at the post office, taught herself how to invest, bought a couple bucks worth of stocks a week for years, didn't blow her money at the bar or get rich quick, you know, on, or on any get rich quick bullshit. Just always slow and steady with those two. Eating at home, not out at restaurants, planted a, a vegetable garden, eating from it every year, canning fruit, checking out books from the library instead of buying them, watching airwave TV you know, instead of getting cable, never living above their means, never got rich, but made enough to always be there and help take care of their families when their families needed them. And that's enough for them. Many would look at their lives and consider it boring. No big fancy vacations, no fancy cars, no fancy clothes, nothing fancy ever. But for me, they're the blueprint. Papa Ward and Grandma Betty, those two should have started a cult. A cult where no one gets fucked. Everyone's just told to put their head down, not worry about what the uh, Joneses have and you don't. Complain less, work harder, and grind, motherfucker, grind. So grind, you beautiful bastards. I preach that shit because I live it. I'd love nothing more than to see all of you, you know, listening, you know, get the success, uh, the most success you can out of life. And I truly believe the best way to do that is just to stay focused, grind the slow and steady course. Fuck shortcuts. Hail Nimrod. Fuck Nexium. Hope Keith, Keith Ranieri gets fucked. Hope his new nickname in prison is Raw Dog Buttfuck McGee. And uh, hello, top five takeaways. I hope it pleases the good God Amway, Lord of delicious and nutritious weight management meal replacement bars. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, Axiom used multi-level marketing to make millions and successful and have a successful run for, for just under 20 years. Multi-level marketing, a legal tactic as ruled by the FTC, is when instead of in a normal supply chain, when a product goes from a manufacturer to a wholesaler to a retailer to a consumer, the product goes directly from the manufacturer to the distributor, usually one individual. That individual responsible for getting other people to sign up to sell for the manufacturer. And MLMs can end up operating a lot like cults. Instead of empowering you to start your own business as they advertise, they often just take your money, make you feel like you're not doing good enough when you don't succeed in a business that literally almost no one succeeds in. And then they shut down your complaints, Not right? It's not their fault, it's your fault. And they isolate you further and further from your friends and family by being so immersive. Most MLMs are bad news, even if they're not illegal. 
Number two, Keith Raniere told his followers that he had three degrees, was a child prodigy, an athlete, learned calculus in an afternoon, was the smartest man on earth, basically had all of humanity figured out. In reality, he was a pedophile sex maniac who enjoyed manipulating people and writing really stupid patent claims, including one for increasing heart rate over time, aka exercise. He was not a genius. He was someone with a complete lack of morals who wanted to have sex with a lot of women, most of them underage, and to be worshipped. Number three, Nexium borrowed from a lot of sources to develop its executive success programs, a series of workshops that cost upwards of 5,000 bucks a pop. And while we don't know to what extent Keith Raniere was inspired by Scientology, the two have a lot in common. Scientology pushes a supposed end goal of becoming clear, the Scientology term for achieving a state of total psychological perfection. Nexium's term for this is unification. Get enough sashes and you're fucking unified, baby! Uh, number four, Nexium and its sister group, JNS, produced DOS, a secret sex cult led by actress Allison Mack, under Keith Raniere's guidance, told women they would become empowered by agreeing to be slaves for other women. And those slaves would in turn become masters to other slaves and everyone eventually would get fucked by Keith. Slavery consisted of providing collateral to make sure they couldn't tell anyone about the group, checking in with their masters multiple times a day, asking what food they could eat, you know, getting punished for disobedience. It included receiving a brand of Keith Raniere's initials. Sarah Edmondson, along with four other women, were branded in January 2017, and Sarah's description of that experience to the New York Times led to Nexium's end. Number five, new info while in prison, Raniere instructed his followers to solicit the assistance of one Alan Dershowitz, the attorney who successfully negotiated a non-prosecution agreement of Jeffrey Epstein. Who is Alan Dershowitz? Why have we seen him in the news so much? Alan Dershowitz is an American lawyer and legal scholar known for his scholarship of U.S. constitutional law and American criminal law. He taught at Harvard Law School from 1964 all the way till 2013, and he's known for taking on very unpopular clients. In 1995, Dershowitz served as an appellate advisor on the O.J. Simpson murder trial, part of the legal dream team, alongside Johnny Cochran and F. Lee Bailey. Dershowitz, also a member of the defense team for nasty-ass Harvey Weinstein in 2018, and then, you know, as I said before, Jeffrey Epstein. Is he a terrible guy? Not necessarily. He said many times that he just supports the Constitution, not any particular person or party, or maybe he's terrible. In a December 30th, 2014, Florida court filing, Virginia Jufri alleged she was sexually trafficked by Jeffrey Epstein, who lent her to people for sex, including Dershowitz. The motion claimed that Dershowitz was also an eyewitness to the sexual abuse of other minors. In the week that followed the release of Jufri's affidavit, Dershowitz denied the allegations, sought disbarment of the lawyers filing the suit. Dershowitz has also stated he plans to sue Netflix over including this allegation in their recent documentary, Jeffrey Epstein, Filthy Rich. It's a complicated figure, Dershowitz, dude who seems to have no moral qualms regarding defending dirtbags, but even he chose not to defend Keith Raniere. Does that speak to how defenseless Keith is based on the evidence against him? Or does even Alan Dershowitz think, oh man, fuck that guy. I can't represent that Nexium dirtbag and still look at myself in the mirror. Time suck. Top five takeaways. The Nexium sex cult has been sucked. Very different type of cult, right? No doomsday predictions, no real compound, no messiah, no prophet. Turns out you don't need to talk about God to start a cult. And how weird to combine it with an MLM, pulling from Amway instead of the Bible. Also, uh, never going to be able to look at Amway 
or any other MLM. Same way again after today. <laughs> uh, thank you to the Bad Magic Productions team for all the help in making time suck. Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins. Hope she'll, she'll feel better in a couple of days. Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley, the script keeper, Zach Flannery, Bit Elixir, Logan and Kate Keys for running badmagicmerch.com and the socials. Hope they feel better in a few days. Thanks to all those who've joined the Cult of the Curious private Facebook group. Uh, over 22,000 members who continue to make time suck more than a podcast, making it a community. Uh, thanks, Liz Hernandez and her all-seeing eyes running the cult of the curious. Uh, thanks to all the wonderful weirdos having fun on Discord. Thanks to, excuse me, thanks to all of you space lizards playing time suck trivia on the app. Bodie 210 currently in the lead with 4,758 points. New round starts on November 2nd, 3 p.m. Pacific time. Uh, next week on Time Suck, we will feature yet another waste of carbon, a wicked entitled sociopath from World War II era England named John Hay. I promise it's not always going to be a dirtbag every week, but they are fascinating, are they not? Besides being a monster, Hay was a very intelligent dude who played piano, loved classical music. Great. Another smart dirtbag. Uh, John Hay lo loved high living, but he definitely wasn't about to work for it. That was so beneath him. Instead, like a well-adjusted meat sack does, he decided to murder people and just take their assets, make their shit his. He even appropriated one of his victims' dogs. Because of the odd, maybe clever, but certainly gruesome way he disposed of the multiple bodies he deprived of life, the tabloids gave him the nickname the Acid Bath Murderer. Also called him a vampire, as he had quite the inappropriate relationship with other people's blood. Despite growing up completely isolated by an extremely religious family, Hay became an outgoing con man who used his gift of manipulating others to increase his social status in his bank account, at least when he wasn't being thrown in jail for his schemes. He soon graduated from con artistry to murder as he believed that as long as no bodies were found, he couldn't be charged with a crime. He was, he was not, not correct about that. Uh, in this spirit, he filled 40-gallon drums with acid and, well, you'll have to come back next week to hear where all that went. So next Monday, we suck the acid bath murderer on a very bloody bangers and mash edition of Time Suck. And now let's yip yip ya on over to this week's Time Sucker updates. Updates. Get your time sucker updates. Our first update uh, is a collective one. It was brought to my attention via numerous social media and YouTube comments that uh, Sergey, right? I was, I was saying Sergey uh, as, as far as S-E-R-G-E-I. It's pronounced Sergey, not Sergey. Apologizes, uh, or apologies, excuse me. <laughs> apologizes. Apologies to pronouncing the Russian name wrong. Uh, now sharing a Boston Strangler update from super sucker Mark Vallon. Just because it put a smile on my face. Mark wrote, Goddamn you, Cummins. Firstly, I hope that you get to feeling better soon. Suck Master Supreme. It's come, come, come getting there. So I'm outside cleaning up an old mower, and I've got the Boston Strangler episode on. Jesus fucking Christ. Fun Frank is a piece of shit. Anyway, when you described his dick as looking like a mangled snake on the road, I flat out snort laughed and fell back onto the ground. Dude, that is the best laugh I've had in a long, long time. Get well soon. Thanks for all the laughs. Thank you for making me smarter on a daily basis. And thanks for your nice message, Mark. I'm glad you fell down. <laughs> no, but seriously, though, makes me uh, really happy to know that this uh, shit makes you happy. I hope you keep enjoying it. Uh, now we'll move away from fluff and get to some great constructive criticism. This first piece coming in from a quality-minded meat sack, Leah Taylor. Leah writes, Hi there, your podcast has been one of my favorites for years now. As a female, excuse me, as a female identifying meat sack, however, I was wondering if you could stop noting whether or not a woman in a story you tell is or isn't attractive. You always use descriptors like an attractive woman or a pretty woman or note if they aren't attractive by your standards whenever you talk about females. I realize this is cultural programming and likely you don't even realize you're doing it, but it would be really great if you'd consider 
uh, if you could consider that you're helping perpetuate a cultural problem where the worth of a woman is based on her attractiveness. I say this as a, a quote or as in, quote, attractive woman myself, who for my entire life was told I was pretty or not pretty enough, thin and beautiful or not thin enough, and my body is the constant subject of attention. Men don't have to deal with this, and I'd love to see a world where women, where women don't either. It takes nothing away from your stories if you stop noting the attractiveness level of a woman in your story. We are more than just our looks, and your word choices matter in either perpetuating this or leaving this moldy misogyny in the dustbin of history where it deserves to go. Thanks kindly for your consideration. Hail Lucifina. Leah. Well, thank you, Leah. Uh, I will work on that. I will work on that going forward. If someone's attractiveness pertains to the story, male or female, I'll comment on it uh, because I'm attracted to women. I will reference from time to time being attracted to certain women in a conversational way. I do realize women are much more than just sexual objects. That said, I do find women sexy and I would feel like I was holding back if I didn't let that out from time to time. But I don't want to perpetuate uh, this objectification. I don't want to just continually reduce female characters to being sexual objects uh, when it doesn't have shit to do with the narrative. Because you're right. Men don't have to deal with that like women do. And, uh, you know, I don't want to keep that pressure going on women. So hail Nimrod and hail Lucifina and thank you for that. Uh, more constructive criticism coming in now from uh, Sucker Not Afraid to Call Me Out on Some Shit. Jenny Taylor host. Jenny wrote, I'm a fan. I've been listening since my boyfriend turned me on to your shit during the baby time suck days. I think... Rather than talk shit about a bunch of poor-ass oppressed Russians who believe in witchcraft because they probably have literally no other option to get medical care, you should leave them out of it and shit-talk the asshole in government that exploited them. Shouldn't comedians punch up? That's a thing, right? The whole ha-ha, look at those stupid poors trying to survive is low-hanging fruit and lame. I know you're busy because I listen to your other podcasts. I'm just used to you being the good, funny kind of dick, not the D-back kind of dick. Uh, please feel free to school me and tell me how I'm wrong and how you didn't shit on a bunch of poor-ass people under communist rule uh, that uh, that they probably hate or reflect on your statements. I know you're good people, so do your so you did your best. Sincerely, Jenny. P.S. I'm not Russian. I'm a mixed native Alaskan white lady, and to my own detriment, stand up for anyone if I think something is not cool because I know what it's like to get shit on. Letting you know because it gives context. Well, this message I'm gonna admit this message pissed me off at first, and I sent a defensive message back to Jenny. And that message led to a great back and forth with Jenny the other night. And I want to make it clear, uh, I don't think Russians are stupid. Uh, I do just find their occult fascination in that episode very amusing. But I don't want to come across as picking on people for making terrible choices because they're uneducated, you know, can't afford to do something else. I, I just wanted to point out how crazy these choices are and how they're not helping anyone's lives. To me, the jokes were more about the wizard swindlers than the people seeking the Russian sorcerers. Uh, I try to punch at the exploiter, not the exploited. And uh, I appreciate you reminding me to make sure I'm doing a better job of making that clear, Jenny. And Jenny, thank you for the conversation that we had. Uh, too much to get into here, but it ended very nicely. It ended very nicely. Uh, uh, and yeah, made me think, which is good. Again, criticism, good. Uh, now for some nice words from hardworking military sucker, Shelly Miller, who writes, hello, all the great names everyone gives you. Only been listening for a short time thanks to my son, Doug, who said, oh, mom, you got to listen to this one, Skinwalker Ranch, because I grew up in that area. Have been jumping around your past episodes ever since. Anyway, my reason for sending this is to thank you for getting me through my last event of my Army Combat Fit, yeah, Army Combat Fitness Test, the two-mile run. After rounding the corner on my last lap, all I could hear in my head was your voice saying, good job, soldier, you made it back. And I laughed as I finished that mother also in your voice. Thanks to your entire team for keeping my daily drive fantastic, Shelly. Well, thank you, Shelly. Love that you and your son listen to the same stuff. Hope you kicked ass on that run. Drive safe 
Keep on sucking. And uh, most importantly, thank you for your service. Now for a granny ripper key update from knowledgeable sack Brian Kramer, who writes, Dear Sir Suckmaster Mushmouth, when you mentioned how funny it was that the granny ripper used the excuse that she didn't have the keys to the apartment when the social worker knocked on her door, as hilarious as your mocking her was, granny's excuse, not as far-fetched as one might imagine. Having lived in Germany for seven years, I know how different the doors in Europe can be. For example, I gave my best friend, also from America, the task of opening the front door upon his arrival, visiting me in Germany. Despite being an engineer, he was not able to figure out the simple task of opening the front door. Crazy, right? Everything is different over here or over there. The windows, the toilets, the electrical outlets, the doors, everything. Basically, the doors over there do not have doorknobs. On the outside of the door, there's a piece of stationary metal slash handle that has a similar purpose to a doorknob, but it has no function other than to other than for one to be able to open the door with these. On the inside, there is a handle that one can push down in order to open the door. However, the doors also feature double locking mechanisms. And if you use your key to double lock your door, you can either open the door from the outside or the inside, even if you push down on the inside handle. This may be an important detail in the case of the Granny Ripper. Theoretically, the Granny Ripper's roommate could have double locked the door from the outside. And if Granny on the inside didn't have a key, she would be stuck in the apartment, literally unable to open the door. Also in theory, but completely idiotic, the Granny Ripper could have double locked the door from the inside and then thrown the key out the window. Of course, all these scenarios would still be suspicious to the social worker, but theoretically not impossible in comparison to how it would be with an American door. They can always be open from the inside no matter what. There have been many occasions in which I double locked the door to my apartment in Germany as a safety precaution only to become worried I wouldn't be able to immediately find my key in order to get out. For this reason, it's often customary to leave the key still hanging from the inside of the door at all times. Anywho, I bet Granny was bluffing either way. P.S. Sorry to make this email longer than it already is, but I do have to mention how much your podcast means to me. I remember once you mentioned how there's probably no one that agrees with you 100% on everything. Eh. But I do have to say that I agree with you at least 99% of the time, which is a big reason why I listen to your podcast. Listening to your podcast is not only entertainment, but it's also a voice of reason inside my ear hole that speaks to me in logical terms, something that is desperately lacking in my surroundings. Sad to say. I appreciate your opinions beyond words. I wish I were surrounded by more people who think like you. That's very sweet. And then PPS, this email makes it in the Time Sucker updates. I want you to give a shout out to my sister, Monica. I do not know if she listens to your podcast regularly or if she ever has, but she introduced me to you and your podcast. Her and I are no longer speaking due to a traumatic event that her and I experienced together for which we both give each other the blame, but she needs to know that I still love her very much and that I wish no negative things on her and that I'm grateful that she introduced me to the suck. Your loyal spaces are in the fight against David Icke and wackadoodleness, Brian Kramer. Well, thank you, Brian. And I hope you and Monica patch shit up soon, man. Sibling strife, that leads to a heavy heart. I hate it when there's tension between my sister and myself. Such a special relationship. So work that shit out. I hope you can. Thanks for the key knowledge. Uh, and glad I make you feel less alone. You all make me feel less alone on a regular basis. Hail Nimrod. And last one now, sweetest sack, Joey Durnitz. Joey, listen up. Joey wrote in with some kindness and I want to return the favor. Joey wrote, suck master and team. Sorry for the long message. I love all three podcasts, STD, or is S, yeah, Scared to Death, Time Suck, and Is We Dumb, and also The Secret Suck. Anyway, I'm 24, and I have autism, and develop, and I'm developmentally, devel oh man, I can't, I can't read it, and I'm developmentally delayed, and I bring this up because when I listen to your podcast, I don't feel like I have a low IQ. I feel average. I'm a janitor. I listen to your podcast at work, and during the, um, the day I go to an adult day services, and I recommend Time Suck to a couple of staff, and one of them I joke around with, the Air Banjo, and I joke with him that he believes the earth is flat with other staff and everyone knows he doesn't, 
In another staff, I recommended the Russian episodes because she's Russian and her father, the owner of the Adult Day Services, is from Russia. Anyway, thank you and hail Nimrod. Joe, I fucking love you, dude. I think whoever gave you the uh, IQ test, I think they fucked up. I bet you have a much higher IQ than you think. And you definitely have an awesome heart and a better brain than today's cult leader, that's for sure. I think you're very much above average. You wrote a better email than most. No misspellings, no grammatical errors. I can't read sometimes, but that's me. Everything was spelled right. You're a smart dude. Fuck anyone who tells you different. Thank you for the job you do. Cleaning related jobs, more important than ever in 2020. You are keeping people from getting sick. You could literally be saving somebody's life doing what you do. Be proud of that or Nimrod will kick your fucking dick off. And keep on sucking, you beautiful bastard. Next time, suckers. I needed that. We all did. And that's all for this week, Meat Sacks. More Bad Magic Productions content coming the rest of this week. Thanks for the ratings and reviews across all of our shows. Three out of five trained fucking kills me. Uh, New Spooks was scared to death Tuesday night. Pure silliness on Wednesday with Is We Dumb? Please don't launch an MLM or a pyramid scheme or a Ponzi scheme this week or brand sex slaves or fuck kids. Please do keep on sucking. Let's listen to a uh, a little more Shatner. The rocket man burning out his fuse out here alone. <laughs> He's smoking a cigarette in between for dramatic effect in between kind of singing. To raise a kid. How? In fact, it's cold as hell. How has this guy had the career he's had? And there's no one there to raise him. If you did. I can see Shatner having a cold. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. <laughs> 